The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Real men can only express their truest emotions with their fists. Truer words were rarely spoken, Don. And very appropriate words, because tonight we're going to be talking about writing shonen manga. We Mm -hmm. did an earlier show about the history of manga. Today we're going to be talking about shonen, that would be boys, manga, and the art of writing it. And who better to have on than Jack Ward? Famous lover of manga and admirer of all things Japanese, who has recently written a book called Write Shonen Manga. Welcome to the show, Jack. Wow, I can hear that spit take from here. Um, <laughs> actually, no, folks, I'm sorry. Jack uh, did not write the book. Um, well, I'm just taking, I'm just teasing Jack because of his famous or rather infamous um, feelings about anime and manga. Mm-hmm. We're saving him for a shoujo episode. Exactly. We're saving him for when we talk about girls' comics. In actual fact, the author of Right Shonen Manga is none other than yours truly. Yep, me, Rob mm-hmm. Patterson. About a year ago, I uh, sat down and I was doing some analysis of you know Japanese comics and storytelling structures used in Japanese comics. Some listeners might remember from about a year ago, uh, I was somewhat obsessed with story structure. Well, this is kind of an offshoot of that. And as an end result, I kept doing research into, you know, the way Japanese, you know, tell their stories. And eventually I ended up with this giant pile of notes that I had nothing really to do with because I'd just kind of been doing it for fun. And I thought to myself, well, I could turn this into a book. And then I thought, no, that would be a stupid idea. That would take far too much time. And <laughs> and then I did it anyway. And um, so six months later, here I am. I have recently published my first book on the subject of shonen manga and the art of writing it. And uh, so now I thought I'd basically take this chance to talk about you know what I learned during my journey, uh, a little bit about my book, and uh, just shonen manga, of course, in general, because shonen manga is awesome. Hmm. So, so where should we start? Thinking, um... You wrote a book specifically about uh, writing shonen comics, mm-hmm. and I think the obvious question is, why specifically shonen comics? Ah, that's a very good question. The, the short answer is because manga is just too big a subject to try to cover with one book. I didn't feel comfortable trying to do a book called, you know, Write Manga, which I think many people right. would have done, but I looked at it and said, well, the analysis I've done was done on shonen comics, mm-hmm. and... While I know something about shoujo and seinen and um, the other different styles of Japanese comics, the one I know best is shonen. And okay. so I thought I would limit myself to just talking about the styles and everything of shonen comics. There's also another aspect, which is uh, somewhat more mercenary, I suppose, which is <laughs> shonen comics are the most popular of all of them. Right. And there is no type of comics probably in Japan that sells more than shonen comics. Okay, except maybe Pachinko comics for some reason, but... Well, <laughs> that's true. Um, well, <laughs> yes, okay, yeah. I mean, 
as far as I know, there are no specific genres that sell better than shonen. I mean, maybe you know the pervy adult comics do, um, but you know that's porn. So we're not going to mm-hmm. take we're not we're going to put that aside. Um, but as far as I know, the best selling comics in Japan are shonen comics. Um, I'm referring to, of course, uh, Naruto, One Piece, Bleach, Dragon Ball. Um, what else? What other co- uh, what other famous shonen comics are there? I think you could basically just say anything anybody's heard of in the last 10 years. <laughs> well, almost, yeah. I That that would work, actually. Pretty much anything that you've seen that's been turned into an anime was probably a shonen comic. Yeah. Um, uh, now, how how are you defining a shonen comic? I'm defining a shonen comic as a comic for 8 to 14-year-olds, basically. Okay. Um, Definitely done in the style of Shonen Jump or Weekly Shonen Jump as we'd know it. Uh, right. For those who aren't familiar, uh, Weekly Shonen Jump is the top-selling manga comic book anthology magazine in Japan, which sells somewhere between two and three million copies a week. Mm-hmm. To give you a perspective, of course, your average Marvel comic right now sells twenty thousand copies a month. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a difference, um, and it has comp- it, and Weekly Shonen Jump, of course, also has competitors that are also selling in so, at least north of a million anyway copies a week, sometimes sometimes a month, and there are actually four Shonen Jump comics as well, Jump right. being the uh, most popular of the different uh, brands. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm defining Shonen comics as the style of comics that they do. I mean, I know there are other companies that do shonen comics, but generally they tend to fall roughly into the same category. Like they tend to follow the same themes. They tend to circle around the same ideas. Mm-hmm. And this is actually important because there's actually shonen comics, which again are meant for 8 to 14 year olds. Okay. Yeah. And then there are seinen comics, which technically are for more or less, they usually say 16 to 40 year olds. I've seen yeah. different numbers, but that's where, where roughly where they put them. Apparently, if you're a 15 year old, you're just SOL. Nobody loves you. <laughs> not in Japan, anyway. Right. Maybe in Alabama, but not Japan. <laughs> Thanks, folks. I'll be here all night. <laughs> so yes, basically, there's shonen comics, and then there's seinen. But seinen covers a huge swath of territory, and yeah. the trick with seinen is even among seinen, there's actually different stages of seinen right like the seinen Mm. comics for a 16 to 20 year old are going to be different than the ones for a 30 to 40 year old because they're going to have a very different sensibility and very different ideas and in fact i would argue that um a seinen comic for a teenager is actually in a lot of ways most of them basically are the same as a shonen comic they just have more gore and violence and sex and drugs in them like Mm -hmm. shonen comics are relatively pure like, right. you know, they might have a little bit of gore, they might have a little or a lot of violence in them, but they generally will not have much in the way of sex. I mean, sex to, in a seinen comic usually amounts to, like, checking out a girl's panties or something like that. There's some sexuality, but there's not mm-hmm. going to be any actual sex. If you hmm. see actual sex, you're probably looking at a seinen comic. Yeah. And you're usually looking yeah. at one that's targeted towards the, we'll call the young adult seinen comic. Yeah. Whereas shonen comics, to flip back, are generally targeted towards what we would consider the middle grade. Like here we would call that middle grade fiction. That's kind of like where Harry Potter starts out. That's Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Um, That's where you'll find a lot of uh, fiction. Uh, Artemis Fowl, for example, another series. 
you'll find all that that's targeted towards the, the 8 to 14 year old set. Um, right. Which oddly enough, of course, is also where Marvel Comics and DC Comics have traditionally been targeted as well. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think your examples are like Harry Potter and that. Um, for myself, I find like the Shonen stuff tends to be a lot more formulaic mm-hmm. than, say, the Seinen. And I think it's because, like you said, the Seinen stuff is generally for a wider spread of audience. It is, yes. Um, I because I think when you talk like your Percy Jacksons and mm-hmm. um and that that's pretty close to the uh, the Shonen formula as well. Yes, it is. Like that covers a lot of ground. The Marvel Comics thing of the DC Comics, I think, um, might be a little problematic as an example because they go through phases. They do. You're right. I mean, there are times when they've been more for a younger audience than more for a slightly older audience. Yeah. Um. So it does get a little problematic. Although at their heart, I would still say they're shown in stories. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think. I um, think. And I'll explain why. There's a very, there's a very simple example I can give with this. All right. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that uh, authors often talk about the difference between young adult um, stories, which are meant for teenagers, and middle grade stories, which are meant for roughly eight, eight to twelve to thirteen year olds, is that. They will say this, a, a young person who's like only in that 8 to 13-ish range basically wants to fit into society, right? Okay. Right. And so they are actually looking for stories about how to fit into society and how to protect and preserve society. Okay. They're actually right. about preservation. They're actually about fitting into the existing system. They're about becoming part of the greater world. Okay. But mostly they're about protecting the world as it is. Whereas the psychology behind young adult, at least this is how authors approach it, and it seems to work very well, is the idea that teenagers, on the other hand, want to make their own world. They want to follow their own path. They want to chart their own direction. And they want a story where generally the character is actually disrupting the world and, if anything, remaking it in their image. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so this is why most young adult stories, uh, Twilight, again, Harry Potter eventually, because Harry Potter starts as middle grade and ends as young adult because of the characters age out, as they say. Right. Those stories, there's a reason why many of them are post-apocalyptic stories is because in the end of that story, they have reshaped the world. It's created a world that's kind of in flux and then the main characters reshaped it through their will and through their efforts in a lot of ways. And mm. so that represents the ideal for a teenager. Whereas, as I said, for young people, they're about preserving the world. So if you think about it, what do superheroes do? They preserve the world as it is. They're power fantasies about becoming part of the world and becoming part of the system and then being the best part of it you can possibly be, which is also, I would argue, what shonen comics are doing as well. Hmm. It's interesting because I think when you put it that way, I think that's mostly right. But you notice... You, you, you notice with the superheroes, though, mm-hmm. um, and I think this might go with what you were saying about how, say, Harry Potter ages out, mm-hmm. whereas, say, a, an American superhero is perpetual and can't, mm-hmm. that, that'll change, that you'll go through, like, um, that applies very much to, say, the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. When you get to the Bronze Age, you start to see the stories go the other way where it's, it's not about preserving and it's not about uh, uh, like saving the world. It's about redoing it. And then we get into 
I guess they called it the modern era, which would be like the 80s. It goes back to that. Mm -hmm. But then when you get near the end, when you get like the dark, gritty phase, it kind of edges again towards that stepping on society rather than 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 maintaining and, and securing it. But it keeps doing that back and forth because, again, the characters are perpetual and you get to that point where your audience has aged up, mm -hmm. but you can't really take the stories that extra spot. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. And also keep this in mind, because you can't take the stories that extra step and because the superhero world in superhero comics always has to be our world with, mm -hmm. with that little bit of t superhero twist. That's one of the reasons why they can never truly be young adult stories, unless you you know do them as an alter alternate Elseworld story or something like that. But that yeah. was the whole point about what if comics that Marvel did for a long time. It's like, well, what if the superheroes really did change the world, or you know these events actually had real consequences, and that's what the what if story would be. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a regular superhero comic, it doesn't matter how many criminals Batman beats up, Gotham is always going to be a crime infested place. And right. it doesn't matter if Reed Richards invents a million different ways to travel faster than light. There will never be real faster than light in the Marvel Universe except in the handful of a small number of secret people. Because if they did, it would stop being our world. And yeah. you can't have that. The, their world is not allowed to change. So I would say that they stay in that middle grade level out of almost necessity. Because okay. they, they, can't, they can't move forward. They can't enter their true period of adolescence. Yeah. Because they're stuck always having to be just on the cusp. They're stuck there in that perpetual state where they can't take that extra step and actually change the world. Because if they do, that world may no longer be relatable to the audience or especially to new people coming in and they don't want to risk it. Okay, makes sense. So that's my theory for American comics anyway. Um, no. the, the Japanese, of course, sidestep this entirely by just making their stories serial. So okay. their characters do change their worlds. Which is not difficult because most of the time in a Japanese shonen comic, their world is not our world to begin with. That's why okay. a lot of shonen comics are set in fantasy settings instead. If you think about it, almost all the major ones are usually set in fantasy settings. And that allows the author to play with certain elements, to focus on certain elements of the story and, and setting and ideas. And it also means they don't have to worry about that stuff. Now, they're very simple fantasy settings. That's, mm -hmm. that's a key because, again, they don't want this to be inaccessible to the audience. And if you give them a really complex setting, the audience might get intimidated. And right. that's a big problem with these comics because they have to be accessible to almost anyone who picks up an issue at any point in the year. Okay. You know, anybody has to be able to pick up one of these weekly, whatever, the 50 or whatever issues that come out a year. I think it's actually 47, something like that because of different holidays, but whatever, that come out each year. They have to be able to pick it up and read it and kind of be able to follow the story and what's going on in that chapter. At least the basic ideas of what's going on in that chapter. Right. And the way they do that in its simplest form is by keeping the setting as simple as possible, usually. Again, it depends on the comp, but usually they do that. And keeping it character focused. So you need to just understand in a shonen comic that it's this character, there are these types of people, which they're usually the same types for especially the heroes, and... This is the good guys, this is the bad guys, and they're fighting each other. Let's watch them fight hmm. and go from okay. there. And that's how most shonen comics are done. I mean, right. they're done, and this is something that people always forget with this serialized idea in mind, that you always have to be 
available for new readers to jump in, and you always have to be doing something that can be really long or really short, depending on how well it's doing, and that you can change as you go. Okay. As you know well yourself, Don, uh, from reading Bakuman and from other sources, generally most shonen authors only work about three or four chapters ahead. Yeah. Because they're constantly worrying about, well, how are the readers going to react? What's my ratings going to be in the next issue? And if I need to change the story. Yeah, they, there's that. And I've also noticed that uh, what a lot of the uh, the Japanese comics do, and they've done for a long time, mm-hmm. they it's, it's similar to how the Europeans do it, but the Japanese do it sneaky. Mm-hmm. That they essentially write any one of the, the, the comics, it's... A bunch of different chapters, and each chapter is kind of like a mini adventure. Mm, yeah, and it seems like that's that's like that. The Europeans will do that, but they'll put it out as a volume, right? And then that volume will be like a self-contained story, and they might do a next volume, which will be it'll tie into the last one, but it'll be its own little thing. It'll okay. be like a new whole new story, right? Uh, whereas the the Japanese seem to do that too. And it, it's, it's, yeah, that idea that it gives you more jumping in points for mm-hmm. new readers. And if the book gets canceled, you can kind of end it without it just stopping. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and they want to be able to have that flexibility. I mean, they want stories to be able to end that way, partly so that you can collect them later in volumes and make more money from them. Yeah, because that's one of, one of my kind of pet peeves is a lot of newer stuff you can tell is written for the collections oh it absolutely is it's absolutely written with the idea that the collections are usually eight uh chapters eight episodes whatever you want to call them per volume all right mm. and so they write them with this rhythm in mo- in mind where the the volume is building up as it goes towards some big event that'll happen at the end of that eighth chapter and that forces you to come back and read the next volume you know to buy the next volume basically to continue the story so mm-hmm. we're looking at these cycles where the each each chapter is leading you to the next one. It's actually setting it up so that you have to read the next one to find out exactly what happens next usually. And then the eighth one is a really big cliffhanger to make sure you buy the next book. Yeah. And so but, they never finish anything usually within a volume. A volume will almost always end on a, you know, a cliffhanger of some kind or a suspense note basically unless it's the very last volume for of the whole series usually. Yeah, and then that leads to a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of the, the pacing will be off because they'll put an extra chapter in to mm-hmm. fill it out to that eight, but that chapter won't quite tie into the main story. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they'll go back and add extra chapters, as you said, or they'll add extra pages. Um, yeah. One person, the guy who does One Punch Man, Murata, um, I'm trying to remember what his first name is, but whichever, he actually is kind of infamous for that where he does a whole like chapter of One Punch Man and then when the collection's coming out, he goes back and redraws a bunch of them and adds extra pages and the, mucks with it again. Yeah. So there's actually at least two versions of every one of his stories. <laughs> Which is true. And a lot of, some of them are very, very different. Yep. Yeah. He's really mucking around with them now mind you there's a catch some of them are actually art wise are dynamically much better often he's just thought of a better way to draw it so he went back and redid it in a cooler way basically yeah so yeah that dude is a monster i mean he he is <laughs> basically the saitama of comic book artists <laughs> and i can i can actually prove it so 
as of us recording this show, okay, um, we're about a day out from his next release of the next, we'll call it, quote-unquote, chapter of One Punch Man, okay? Mm. And he does this on, um, on one of these live streaming channels. So he lets people watch him work. And so he has this little... A uh, little table, the hand scribbled table that he keeps next to him with checkmark boxes indicating how many pages are going to be in each chapter. All right. And the next chapter that's due out tomorrow is 137 pages. <laughs> uh huh. You have to realize something. He put out the last chapter less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. That dude just did 137 <laughs> pages of manga art in one month. Now, our, our audience, for those who are not familiar, might not quite comprehend what, what I've just said. Um, a normal manga releases 16 to 18 pages a week. All right? Mm-hmm. So, it is doable. I mean, let's let's just round it to 20 for fun. Um, assuming there's a splash page or whatever else is there. So, a normal manga artist might release 80 pages a month. Okay? Murata just did 137. <laughs> okay? And that, that 20 pages a month, that's done with a whole team of assistants, which Murata does have. Mm-hmm. But still, that's an insane level of productivity. His normal releases for One Punch Man are only usually between 30 to 50 pages tops for once a month. Right. And this time he did 137. And nobody knows exactly why he did 137, but for whatever reason, that, that guy has decided <laughs> to do it. He is literally a monster manga artist. Yeah. Like he's, he's astounding what he's capable of. But... But anyway, we should probably be go back to talking about more about uh, manga itself. So, so manga uh, first appeared. Just to give a quick history for those who missed the history lesson, because and a little more specific one. Shonen manga first appeared about nineteen, I believe it was sixty eight, is when Shonen mm. Jump premiered. Yeah. Um, there was Shonen manga before this. I mean, obviously for young boys, but Shonen Jump is kind of like the Marvel comics of manga. They're basically the ones that do it best and have kind of set the standard for how everyone else does it. Yeah. When they first appeared, of course, they were a variety of stories, mostly like racing stories and some gang stories and some martial arts stories and, you know, adventure stories and and a mix of of stuff. And with each decade, they've changed. Uh, In the 1970s, I believe Shonen Jump was actually the home of uh, Mazinger Z. And the other and the giant robot revolution that would come in the very early seventies. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they were that it premiered in uh, Shonen Jump, um, and then they would go on to do many other things. Um, eventually, they would uh, be involved with kind of the action hero genre of the late seventies and early eighties. Um, there was also the gang story genre, which was really popular for a little while there during the eighties as well. That's yeah. where you'd get these roving bands of schoolboy toughs that like banded together to beat up other gangs of schoolboy toughs. That was a really big <laughs> genre for a little while there. Um, yeah, also, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Um, also, sports stories as well. Um, mm-hmm. We got Captain Tsubasa, which is the famous uh, Japanese soccer sports drama, I believe. Might have been a Shonen Jump comic as well. I'm not 100% sure on that, but it was definitely a Shonen comic anyway. And yeah. there were so there were various uh, sports dramas that took place in Shonen comics. And... You know, so they've slowly evolved over time. Um, and then once we got into the, well into the 80s, of course, we got Dragon Ball itself. Yeah. Um, and Dragon Ball revolutionized everything. It mm-hmm. uh, transformed the world of Shonen Comics because by being so massively popular that it, you know, it increased the sales of Shonen Jump by millions of issues. 
Millions yeah. by itself. Millions. It increased their circulation. And so, as an end result, Dragon Ball kind of set the standard for what Shonen comics would be ever since then. Like, ever mm-hmm. since it first appeared, it kind of changed everything. Especially once they got to the, what we call the Dragon Ball Z phase. Yeah. Which has been pointed out that actually Dragon Ball Z is just a label for the anime. The original Dragon Ball in it, in the original form is just called Dragon Ball for its entire run. Mm-hmm. But what we call Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z or differentiate between the two is when Goku is a kid and when Goku is an adult. Yeah. When he's an adult, it's Dragon Ball Z because that's what they call the animated version to differentiate it. But the actual comic book itself just has a time jump and doesn't actually have changed the name. At least that's what I've read anyway. Yeah, they they change it for the the show I th- I think because uh what ends up happening is Goku's the main character but mm-hmm. Gohan becomes kind of like his son mm-hmm. becomes he he ends up becoming the main character. Mm-hmm. At one point the focus shifts to him and for for the animation I think when you get a uh, Gohan coming into the story is when they start calling it Dragon Ball Z. So it's basically the next generation at that point. Yeah. That's yeah, a good way I, to look at it. Yeah, okay, yeah. Hmm. And yeah, like the comic didn't do that. The comic just continued on and on yeah, and on yeah. and on. I apologize to Dragon Ball fans. My Dragon Ball knowledge is spotty. I haven't read all of it. I've read chunks of it, but I haven't read all of it. Um, it's one of those uh, comics that there's a lot of Dragon Ball. There's a lot of it. There's only what a hundred thousand volumes or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm afraid I'm a little. I'm not as versed in my Dragon Ball as perhaps I should be, but. I do know the you know the standards that it set very very well because especially with Dragon Ball Z which was mega super popular mm-hmm. that became what basically became the template for what I refer to in my book as the uh, battle manga mm-hmm. which uh, is uh, what I call a meta genre uh, which is a meta genre is basically a kind of not just a genre like horror or sci-fi or comedy or whatever but it's this kind of type of story that can actually you can do any other genre with it. You can kind of stick other genres into it and use that as kind of the formula or structure to tell those genre stories. Like, right. for example, um, with Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball basically set the standard, Dragon Ball Z specifically, sets the standard where we introduce this you know, young martial arts hero and then we basically watch him grow and go through different phases of his martial arts career and grow mm-hmm. and develop. And it set the story in such a way that Everyone else who follow, who came after, would follow basically these these certain milestones or these certain steps that yeah. uh, it would go through. They would copy the damn Dragon Ball formula. <laughs> That's just it's Dragon Ball. It's all just it's it's all Dragon Ball exactly. Yeah, Dra- Dragon Ball perfected that. Like nobody nobody's been able to crack that code since. Oh, I would argue if you have. I mean, we've uh, had. Um... One Piece, for example, and Naruto both have actually done an excellent job of cracking the Dragon Ball formula and actually, you know, almost perfecting it in a way. Kind of, but they they do it by basically being Dragon Ball again. That's true. That's 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 very true. Um, mm. There 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 are different takes on it, though. I mean, they are trying to do something 
I can't say different with it, but they're but they're but they're trying to do it something with it. Yeah. But but anyway, so in my book, actually, I define battle manga since I brought this up. Uh, here's how I came to define battle manga: is a battle manga is a story focused on a small group of characters in a high stakes situation fighting a series of clearly defined competitive personal duels in a limited space. That's mm. my hyper specific definition or, <laughs> or hyper general definition, depending on your point of view, of a battle manga. Um, and you might wonder why I why I pray, why I say it that way. So let me just repeat that: a battle manga is a story focused on a small group of characters in a high stakes situation fighting a series of clearly defined competitive personal duels in a limited space. All right. Mm. So the reason I set it up that way is after reading a great amount of battle manga or, or that follow this formula, I've noticed that. This is basically a way to describe how almost all of these stories work to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. So we have a relatively small cast engaging in a series of duels, obviously, because they're they're fighting, right? Um, there are two types of battle manga. One are called activity manga and one are called fighting manga. Dragon Ball is basically the archetypal fighting manga, okay? Right. Which it's, it's about people beating the crap out of each other. That's what they're doing, mm-hmm. all right? And they're doing it under a clearly defined set of rules, Okay, because the audience has to be able to follow what's going on and do it in a very simple way. All right, the rules themselves are also adding an element of uh, drama to the story, like they're limiting what the character can and can't do. Right. And so, for example, they're, the characters are often working within the rules to try to get some advantage, or the bad guys are often twisting the rules or breaking the rules to get some advantage. But the, there's always rules. There's always a definition to the way they compete. It's always a defined set of uh, structure you know, of some kind, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there has to be high stakes because the, if the characters are doing it because they want a piece of pie... That can be entertaining, but it's not going to be taken very seriously by the audience. So there has to be high stakes in some way. Mm-hmm. And finally, they have to be doing it in a limited space of some kind because the characters have to constantly be being pushed together by the circumstance so that they're constantly in jeopardy and there's that constant sense of drama and they can, bad things could happen and the good guys can meet the bad guys at any time and they're constantly like ne- next to each other so that the drama is intensified. Okay? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, and that's um, when you explain it like that. You hit on one of the things that I think, and I've seen this mentioned by other people that marks an earmark of what makes a shonen comic as opposed to another type. Mm-hmm. Is I've heard that one of the keys of a true shonen story is it's about camaraderie. Yes, it is, and that's why you usually have a small team mm-hmm. of 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 heroes. And they're always bumping into each other, and there's usually some kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. But it's about how they stick together, and it's about the bonds that form between them. Absolutely. And in fact, actually, Shonen Jump has a motto that all Shonen Jump comics have to follow. Okay? I don't know if you Dragon Ball. Well, besides that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's one of the mottos. Um, the, <laughs> other, the other motto is three words. Friendship, effort, victory. Yep. Friendship, effort, victory. All Shonen Jump comics have to follow those three words or the, that you know, idea, that, that conception in some way. They all, they all have to represent those things in some way. So they're all going to be about characters who, through friendship and effort, manage to achieve victory. Yep. Yeah, because that's one of the things that uh, differentiates, say, Shonen from the Shoujo stuff. Mm-hmm. The girl stuff at least up until the 90s, 
Mm-hmm. The girl stuff was always about an individual and her personal journey. It wasn't about mm. the other people in her life so much. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I, I can definitely see that. Whereas when they did the Sailor Moon stuff starting in the 90s, mm-hmm. um, that was basically them applying the Dragon Ball... No, actually, that wasn't the Dragon Ball formula. That was another formula. But that, that them applying one of the shonen formulas, the boys' formulas, to girls' comics. Yeah. And they basically took that and said, okay, well, let's let's use the formula for we're using for all our Sentai shows, the Power Rangers-type shows, mm-hmm. uh, which is another formula that they use, which is a little different than Battle Manga, believe it or not. It's actually slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... They took that and they said, let's do it with all with an all-girl cast. And ta-da, we had Sailor Moon. Yeah, and then that became the big thing for for mm-hmm. like the 90s and that. Yep, exactly. That became a huge thing. And Sailor Moon follows all of this traditional Sentai, you know, stereotypes right to the to the T. Like mm-hmm. it's with just this like shoujo's twist to it. Yeah. And the only thing is I will say that if you read modern um shoujo comics they actually still are mostly about an individual. Um, yeah. It's only the uh, stuff meant for younger girls, oddly enough. Like the um, the stuff that appears in Nakayoshi, which is one of the, if not the top shoujo or girls comic uh, collections. Mm-hmm. There you will find action stories that are about groups, I've noticed. But if you go up to the girls comic stuff, which is their equivalent to seinen, which... I'm trying to remember what it's called. There's a there's a name for it. Jose. Jose. Thank you. Yeah. Well, if you go to Jose Comics, then it will shift back to an individual girl trying to find her place in the world. Yeah. Probably because again, that works better for a teen mindset, whereas a young girl, eight to fourteen year old, is still trying to find friends and build her social group, and is still trying to find her place in the world, just like a young boy of that age is. Yeah, that and again, kids are usually pretty selfish and self-oriented, so. Mm, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so yeah, that's uh, that's definitely true. Um, so so that's battle manga. As I said, there are two kinds of battle manga. Uh, one is a uh, fighting manga, which is generally about, yeah, people, you know, beating the crap out of each other. And that's, it's Dragon Ball, basically. Dragon Ball, mm-hmm. One Piece, Naruto, those are all battle manga. Uh, yeah. Uh, the fighting ones. Um, then there's also another kind of battle manga, which I find even more fascinating, which is activity manga. Right. Um, and they are still following the battle manga formula. They are absolutely still following that this staged fighting as the character goes through their uh, evolution as a character. But the trick with activity manga is it's not set around a fighting competitive art. It's set around usually something else. Like, yeah. for example, an activity manga will be about sports. It will be about cooking. Um, yeah. You could literally do an activity manga about almost anything, and the Japanese have. Yeah. Um, yes, they have. <laughs> you could do it about uh, board games. Um, that's what Yu-Gi-Oh! is. That's what Pokemon is. Would I would argue falls actually into the activity manga category. Um, another thing, too, about activity manga is usually they're also about teaching the audience something about a particular 
subculture and about a particular activity. That's why I call them activity yeah. manga. So, for example, stamp collecting. You could do an activity manga about stamp collecting, where the characters are constantly competing with each other about who can get the rare stamp or about who can recover a stamp or things like that. And in the process, the audience is learning about the different kinds of stamps and the different inks that they use and the different paper they use and which stamps are valuable and which stamps aren't <laughs> valuable. And, you know, and... Uh, Hito has to get, has to has to quickly race out to Yokohama to get that stamp before his rival does. That they both just found out that there's a rare stamp has been spotted in this stamp collecting store. But when they get there, the stamp collector who's running the store will suddenly say, "Oh, both of you want this stamp, do you? Well, let's have a contest to see which of you knows more about stamps." And will suddenly be quizzing them on stamp related collecting stuff. And oh God, yes. <laughs> And Don's laughing because this is exactly how it works. Um, yeah, and, 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 oh, go ahead. And it really is a formula. It's this is exact, and you can do anything. You can do it with stamps. You could do it with growing plants. You could do it with fashion. You could do it with any. And they do. They use this yeah. freaking formula for everything. <laughs> and the the funniest part too about it, and mm -hmm. this is what I'm laughing at the the stylization and the imagery they use mm -hmm. is the same as the fighting books. Yep. Because I've seen like crazy stuff, like the cooking things, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. where it'll be it'll be like, and who can make better pancakes? And they're using all these like dramatically lit like action scenes, and the guy will take a spatula and it'll be like a two page spread of just this guy like pointing his spatula at the other dude and saying, "My pancakes will be fluffier," and it looks just like a fighting comic, except yep. they're making pancakes. Yep. Yeah, we never did that here. That's something I think we kind of missed out on. I, I do think we did, because one of the things about activity manga is they're incredibly, when they're well done, I mean, they're incredibly, what's the correct word? They are, they're incredibly you know, gripping in some ways. Like, I'll give mm. you an example. One of the comic that actually first started me on this whole path of research was actually a, a comic called Robot X Laserbeam. Oh, which I golf. Think, which I think even got mentioned in a previous show. Yeah. And which, is, which is the golf one. Look, I hate golf. Okay. Golf is one of those things that I find boring beyond all belief. To me, it's like watching paint dry. Golf is the most boring <laughs> thing ever. But I started reading this golf manga called Robot X Laser Beam or whatever that started about a year ago in uh, Shonen Jump. I can't stop reading it. It's the most fascinating <laughs> thing ever. They made golf the most, and I and I was reading it, and I'm going, why does why is this thing so compelling? Why do I have to keep reading this? Why can't I stop? And I ended up throwing myself into this research partly because I wanted to know why I was finding this <laughs> damn boring golf comic so fascinating and couldn't stop reading it, and. The answer is because it was still using the same formulas that all the fighting stuff was. They're still mm -hmm. using the same styles. They're still using a lot of the techniques of drama that a lot of the fighting stuff is. And they managed to spin it in just such a way that it actually makes it really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's Robot X Laser Beam's fault. That's that's really what this whole <laughs> book is the, is the fault of. It pretty much is. I mean, yes, I've been reading manga and anime for watching anime for like 30 years, but it really comes down to Robot X Laser Beam. That's, that's the one I blame. You know what's really weird about that? What? There was another golf comic that I remember from uh, from the 80s. I don't remember the name. The only thing I, I recall 
Mm. Uh, the one guy had his his lucky like far whacker. I don't know the technical names for the golf clubs. Mm-hmm. And it far was whacker. the frying swallow. <laughs> You're kidding. Because it was engraved on it, and they do the art, the super detailed realistic art, and it was F-R-Y-I-N-G. And I think it was supposed to be flying, but... Of course it was. R's and L's in Japanese are the same sound. They don't differentiate them. So they have a habit of writing R or L when they actually mean the other letter. Yeah, or just randomly interchanging them. And Because we had a discussion about that comic a long, long, long time ago. I don't know if you remember. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with Batman. Okay. Because, I don't know if you remember, we had a discussion, and it was, if you're comparing characters to see who is tougher, because I believe we were doing this for writing uh, role-playing games back mm-hmm. back in the day. Mm-hmm. How do you decide who is tougher? Like, like who would win the fight, Batman or Kenshiro? Mm-hmm. Well, Ken, Kenshiro probably. But Kenshiro. it's that, it's the idea, the idea that when you deal with something like say a comic, there's two realities you have to take into account and that's mm-hmm. what you're looking at mm-hmm. and what the idea behind it is. Mm-hmm. Cause Batman is supposed to be, he's not the top hand to hand combatant in the, uh, the DC universe, but he's, he's up there. Yes. Yeah. I think like gold tiger is the only guy who's supposed to be tougher than Batman in a fight. I believe there's a character called Richard Dragon who's actually supposed to be number one in the DC universe. Okay, we might be talking about the same guy. No, because wait, no, you mean Bronze Tiger? But Bronze, Bronze Tiger, yeah, Bronze Tiger's a black dude, whereas Richard yeah. Dragon is a white dude who managed to like master like all every martial art in like existence or something like that. Okay, they introduced him a little later on, so maybe you're not familiar with him. But anyway, okay. sorry. But you get that idea that these are the top guys, right? Yeah. Now, the way American comics are drawn, they tend to be kind of matter-of-fact art-wise, even with the action. Mm -hmm. But then you go to say, like, to compare that to a Japanese character, you have to take that idea into account because Japanese comics are always... The action is very overdrawn in Mm -hmm. in most of them. Yeah. And we talked about this golf comic because you would have these scenes where he's, like, doing his far shot, whatever the hell they call it in golf... Mm-hmm. And it'd be this wind up and like I say, these two page spreads of the guy and it just looked like the universe is coming to an end when story wise he's just making his shot. Yeah. Yeah. But but visually it's crazy and you look at that and if you compare that just visually to like an American comic, like that club would just knock Batman into like the Marvel universe, like really. Yeah. And and it and it's that idea, that conceptualization. And then mm-hmm. that's why I find it funny when you talk about the uh, the activity-oriented comics, because they're all like that. It doesn't matter if you're playing chess. That's, that that move in that chess piece, that, that just looks like the world is coming to an end, because they're so going to exaggerate the action. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yep, that's exactly what they'll do. And through that exaggeration, through that very these cinematic techniques they use in manga, they manage to bring everything to life. Or and correction, they manage to give it a kind of hyper reality mm. that makes it fascinating and interesting, no matter what it is, even if it's freaking stamp collecting or growing plants <laughs> or golf or whatever. They, or they manage to bring it to life. And that's one of the things that just absolutely fascinates me both because they do it on a story level and they also do it on the art level and they make it work in such a way that it all comes together into this glorious piece of (laughs) art. I was going to say insanity, but whatever. That works too. Yeah, insanity (laughs) works too. Insanity definitely describes some of it as well. (laughs) Yep. 
Um, so yeah, so this, so this, this fascinated me and I wanted to start doing more. And as I did more and more research, I just ended up with all these notes and everything. And so that's where my book pretty much came from. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so let's see. So there's battle manga and they basically are either, you're either fighting manga or activity manga, but again, they're both generally following the same formula structurally, both short term and long term. Like they're, Mm -hmm. they're both heading towards a very similar end. They both usually have some like um, character that represents like the character. The main character is on a journey and they basically basically have a final bad guy that they have to defeat at the end. It doesn't matter if it's a final stamp collector bad guy or it's a final like you know martial arts bad guy. There's always going to be that guy at the end you have to defeat and he represents the end of your journey. Actually, and, you know what's funny? Hmm. He represents something else too. What? Because uh, remember we talked a while ago that a big difference between say American stories and Japanese stories is that Americans like the hero to be awesome to begin with. Whereas mm. the Japanese like them to build up to it. Right. That rival is usually awesome to begin with. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I find that they are usually several steps ahead of the main character. Okay. So mm. I would say the main character, if you want to do it this way, okay. The main character starts at zero, let's say, okay. On a scale of one to 100. Okay. The mm. bad guy usually... Now, this depends on the genre we're talking about, okay? If it's a fighting comic, like as in, you know, martial arts stuff, the bad guy probably starts on a scale... Of, my, the bad guy probably is sitting up close to like 70 or 80 when the hero starts at zero, okay? Right. And that's kind of how it comes together. Whereas, if it's an activity manga, I find often the bad guy... Would, the hero will be at zero, and the bad guy will only be at about 30 on that scale. Because I find with activity manga, what, a very common trope is that when the bad guy, you know, the, sorry, the rival, let's call him the rival because it's better for activity manga. When he uh-huh. finally meets the hero, seeing the hero kind of reignites a flame that he kind of usually lost at mm-hmm. some point, And then he starts accelerating very fast towards that 100 and the hero has to catch up with him. And then again, right. and then they eventually meet again at 100. But usually the bad guy is is usually plateaued when he meets the hero. It's kind of somewhere in the middle of his okay. uh, development curve. And then meeting the hero, this is the one of the ways that they actually kind of heighten the drama a little bit by the hero has inspired even the bad guy to actually work harder and it make his own life hmm. more difficult in some ways. Yeah, because the, the rival usually, they're starting with some kind of advantage. And that's, oh, yeah. that's what... What whereas like our hero is usually like the good, hardworking, average person, but the rivals he has a some kind of gift, or they're starting like um like they're the son of the last champion and they have all of that experience. It's it's something that to me a lot of times it feels like what what they're doing is the rival has the unfair advantage. Yeah. They always have the unfair because if yeah. they didn't, it's not interesting, right? Mm-hmm. They always have, to have an unfair advantage. It is, but it's specifically an unfair advantage. Yes, and then meeting the the good, wholesome, hardworking hero, like you say, that kind of shakes them out of their funk, mm-hmm. and it dr- it drives them to a lot of times, I guess you say, to forsake that advantage right. and actually apply hard work because. Hard work is the key. It's not like here where you are the chosen one and then that's all you need. Right. Yeah. No, no, I agree. Now, mind you, keep in mind that most shonen heroes of one kind always have an advantage too. 
mm-hmm. they've always got some gift or some, some talent. Well, they've usually got two. One, they'll have a talent for hard work that if they right. work hard, they can like, they have a really lot of, they have a ton of potential basically they can reach if they only work hard, which they eventually do. Mm-hmm. And two, they usually have something that makes them special, like some extra little gift that again, it has to be developed. It has to grow, but they still have it there to, to give them that extra boost that makes them different from everyone else. Yeah, that and it usually starts as a curse. Well, they often consider it a curse of some kind. Yeah, you're right. That it's it's something they have to sort of, they have to overcome and gain control of before they can actually capitalize on it. Yes and no. I mean, it does depend on the comic. I mean, one could say that, uh, for example, in One Piece, Luffy's ability to stretch is not a curse. The only curse that comes with it is if he drops into the water, he sinks like a rock. He basically become paralyzed because yeah. that, if, the, if you're a devil fruit user. But oddly enough, they don't really use that very much in the story. In fact, it pretty quickly went away. Um, so that's not a big – it's not a big curse. But in the case of, say, Naruto, for example, spoilers, you know, 20-year-old spoilers. <laughs> Naruto has a giant, like, demon fox spirit hiding inside him that mm. is a curse and is definitely trying to take him over and you know do evil stuff at first until Naruto can eventually get control of it. Yeah, there's there's a bunch I'm thinking of uh Hikaru no Go. Okay, yeah, which who has again he has that spirit uh say if Sai. I remember right. Sai, yeah, Sai. Sai. Yep. And and yeah, and that gives him his advantage at playing. Yep. But Sai is one of the most whiny, annoying assholes ever ever. And that's the that's that's the curse. He he won't let Hikaru like just be his typical lazy kid self. Well, that's exactly it. You have to have a a quote unquote curse element to it because otherwise the hero would just use that and kick butt. I mean, so there has to be some reason why the hero can't just use their gift to just you know be just like the bad guy and kick everyone's butt beyond them being a good hearted person. Yeah. Um, usually they have to find some way to get control over their abilities, which they only have limited control over at the beginning, so they have to work hard. Again, it's that effort business, remember? Yeah. Effort, friendship, victory. There has to be that effort. The character has to be working at something and working to uh, achieve. And if they don't have to put effort into it, it's not going to work. It won't be a proper shonen story. Yeah, that's the same thing like Bleach. Bleach was the same that uh, Ichigo mm-hmm. could see spirits, but right. they mostly just irritated him because he, didn't, he right. didn't really care and he didn't have the ability to do anything about them at first. Yeah, at first, yeah. And then eventually he figured out, oh, well, I can I can do something about it. Well, once I, if I remember right, he got uh, Ruika's powers. Was it yeah. Ruika? I think something like, that's her name, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I've never a big Bleach fan. But um, <laughs> but yes, I mean I like stories with backgrounds. Ooh. Anyway, so sorry. Twenty year old slam. <laughs> exactly. Not twenty year old. When Bleach first started, it actually did have backgrounds. But eventually, the, the creator got so lazy he just stopped drawing them after a certain point. And that yeah, mm-hmm. that was a horrific case of the background and setting really doesn't matter. It's all about the characters. Well, he took it to a new extreme. <laughs> it was just characters fighting on a white background. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> So anyway, so I found that there are actually a couple other kinds of uh, shonen manga types that we, meta genres that we could talk about. Okay. Um, another type are what I call procedural manga. And these are stories that are built around a character following some kind of uh, procedural steps to achieve a goal. Right. Um, a traditional example of this would, of course, be a mystery manga where, you know, you have to follow the 
uh, traditional procedure of you know you you interview the sub- suspects, you search for clues, you you know you go through the steps, and eventually you find you know you get your result. Basically, you learn you figure out who did it. Um, right. Procedural manga mysteries are not as popular as they once were. I mean, in fact, the only shonen one that I know of that still exists actually there's two. Um, there's Detective Conan, right. which has again run since like the early '90s. Um, although I hear it's just about to end, actually. The mangaka, after like 20 plus years, has finally gotten tired of it. Um, and there's also, oh my god, again, I'm forgetting his, his, the name of it is just on the edge. It's not, uh, there's, well, there's Tente Gakuin Q, which is one, right. but there's another one. Oh, Kindaichi. Yes, Kindaichi, oh. the Kindaichi Files, which is okay. another, um, similar to Detective Conan. You know, again, they're teenage detectives, basically, that, you know, get involved in murder mysteries. And so they spend a couple chapters, you know, solving a mystery with lots of weird stuff happening, basically. Right. Um, then the other kind I refer to are, are creative procedurals, which is basically a story, like, for example, the right now one thing's popular is the reincarnation genre, where a character will suddenly wake up in a fantasy world and they'll discover they're a goblin for example okay and they'll just a character person from our world will suddenly wake up discover they're a goblin and they're like holy crap i'm a goblin in a goblin society this is a real comic by the way it's called re monster it's a real mm-hmm. comic that's what they call it in english re monster it might be called that in japanese too and he's like okay i have human knowledge but i'm a goblin a baby goblin in fact what am i going to do and it's about them basically figuring out the steps of how to fix their situation in this in this case you know how to use their exam how to use their knowledge to benefit the world around them and to change their life and improve their life uh, that's a popular one another uh, example of a creative procedural is sword art online uh, lit mm-hmm. rpg ones where a character gets stuck in like a game or something like that and has to puzzle their way through how to finish this game and get out or beat the game or whatever popular mm-hmm. one and then there's my most favorite creative procedural ever, which is running right now, which is called Dr. Stone. Mm. And Dr. Stone, well, Don, tell us about Dr. Stone. Isn't that the one, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a Boichi one. Yes, it is. Obviously, it's, you're it's, not reading as highly as I am, but okay. No, it's, it, I, I saw like the first one. It's, it's, cause it, at least it starts with, it's, it's like a disease. It's turning people into statues or something, isn't it? Not exactly. What happens is it's about a, um, a character named Senku, uh, who's like the scientific genius. He's kind of like a, almost a Doctor Who level genius. Mm-hmm. And one day suddenly everyone, uh, gets in the world, suddenly gets turned to stone. Okay. Everyone in the world just bang is suddenly turned to stone one day and no one knows why. Um, mm-hmm. including our main character. All right. Then like 20,000 years pass, basically. And then suddenly, (laughs) Uh thanks to certain circumstances, he wakes up. Um, Mm -hmm. It's originally following his buddy, whose name I forget. But and he wakes up and he's like, holy crap. I, the stone basically suddenly turns out to be a shell and it just falls off him. And so suddenly he's in this post-apocalyptic world surrounded by the statues of all these other humans, the ones that haven't broken or shattered over the years. And all of mm. to all of humanity, but, you know, the world's all overgrown with plants now. There's animals around, like everything's gone back to nature. And so he's like, how do I use my scientific genius to restore civilization? And that's what he sets mm-hmm. out to do from scratch. Okay. And so... Dude, you have to read it. It is like one of the <laughs> most awesome comics ever. It starts a bit slow, 
But uh-huh. once you get to the point where he finds this is a bit of a spoiler. He but anyway, he finds a village of other people that have mm-hmm. um, also that may never have been turned to stone. They may be descendants, or they may be people who who kind of thought out earlier or something. We don't know exactly at this point in the story. And they're right. a lot of fun, and it, it becomes awesome at that point. It begins huh. a little rough, but once he gets to the village, it is one of the most awesome things I have read in a long time. It's called Dr. Stone, and it is so mm-hmm. much fun. And if you love Boichi's stuff, you really need to be reading this. Boichi is a comic artist that we're both a fan of. And mm-hmm. um, normally he doesn't do shonen stuff. He mostly does seinen stuff. But I think this is, might yeah. be one of his very first shonen works, but amazing stuff. Anyway, creative procedurals yeah, are about... Yeah, about accomplishing some creative task basically yeah and you're it's interesting too because you're right that a lot of them are really similar to the uh lit rpg stories Mm -hmm. that that have been uh taken off the last few years well they're an obvious form of uh well actually the lit rpg genre pretty much comes from asia we we had uh ramon on who talked about that i'm trying to remember whether it was russia or asia I'm pretty sure it actually started in either China or Korea, and the reason for okay, I think it was I think it was, I think Korea. It was Korea because even the Russian stuff I've read some of the translations of some of the Russian lit RPG stuff, some of the early stuff, and they make mm-hmm. references to a Korean uh, lit RPG story that was kind of the first one I think that everyone went crazy for, which was called Legendary Moonlight Sculptor. And again, which is again about a character who uh, has to literally start from the bottom and work his way up. But the trick is, in the case of Legendary Moonlight Sculptor, he actually kind of beat the game once before, but he's being mm. forced to start again and use his some of his abilities to actually. Um, it gives him an advantage the fact that he's beaten the game once before, at least in an earlier form, and then now he's got to start from scratch and using that knowledge, what is the most strategic way he can go through it and beat the game in a new way and become, and be even more successful. Right. And so he's got the, he's got this creative procedure goal. And so I think it started with them, but now I've got to tell you that the uh, lit RPG and what's called the reincarnation genres are huge in Asia. Like the Japanese light novels, especially, and a lot of manga these days are totally about the reincarnation genre which basically is as i mentioned earlier before a character wakes up in the body of someone else usually in a fantasy setting or another time or place and then has to kind of just create a new life from there yeah and it's become huge like super huge i mean almost every second story in asia china japan everything is a reincarnation story these days yeah, and it's weird because I hadn't noticed that until just now when you mentioned it. But holy crap, yeah, that that is something that and that really has taken yeah. off. And it's not just boys' stuff; actually, girls' stuff, especially in China, and that is all that too. Uh, my wife mm-hmm. watches lots of uh, Asian dramas, and every single freaking drama is about some girl that basically falls off a bridge or something like that. And when she wakes up, she's <laughs> in like ancient Korea or ancient China or something or some <laughs> fantasy land. And now she like meets a bunch of princes and has to hang out and decide. Eventually, they all fall in love with her, and she decides has to decide which one she's going to hang with. And that's like every second freaking drama at this point. <laughs> like the reincarnation wow. stuff is just. Like it just took off to an incredible degree, maybe even more so among women's stuff than men's. But the guy's stuff does it. Um, 
one of they're two of my favorites that I one I haven't read yet, but I am going to at some point is um mm-hmm. what is it called? Give me one second here, I'll tell you what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um cuz I got to get the title for this one right. Okay, you 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 understand what I Okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay, one the the one of them that I I have to read at some point is so I'm a spider. So what? Okay. Here, here's the here's the pitch for it. I used to be a normal high school girl, but in the blink of an eye, I woke up in a place I've never seen before, and I was reborn as a spider. How could something that's nothing more than a tiny spider—that's me—possibly survive in literally the worst dungeon ever? Are there no rules? There should be some rules. Who the hell is responsible for this? Show your face. That's an actual <laughs> a light novel from Japan. <laughs> How could you resist? How could, how could you resist that? <laughs> um, and there's another one that that I'm that I'm very fond of, uh, and it's called that's the name of is totally escaping me at the moment. But it's basically about a girl who's a bookworm, okay? Mm-hmm. And she uh, one day her stack of books falls on her and kills her. She's like this middle aged woman, okay? <laughs> and she suddenly wakes up. In a medieval fantasy society where the only books that exist are like cost like a couple gold coins and are like the most precious thing ever. And almost no one is literate. And she basically has to reinvent literacy and printing and bookmaking and everything. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. she's she's an incredibly feeble four or five year old girl. So her, so she's got the <laughs> memories of her old self, but basically what's happened is, and this is an interesting thing about reincarnation, it's very common. The actual characters, the body that they're in, usually is someone who's died. So they die, and then they wake up in someone else's body, but it's almost like their spirit goes into someone else's body at the time that that person died. And so when right. they wake up, they're almost always characters that, yeah, they've, they've died, basically. But they, all people around them are like, oh, my God, it's a miracle you're alive. But they don't realize that there's now another spirit living in that person's body. That's kind of weird because that was uh, the, the one French comic we were reading. That's kind of uh, a lot of like what that was oh, about. yeah. Yeah, okay. Echo. What? Echo, Echo yeah. yeah. That was member. Yeah, that was kind that of an idea. Was... You're right. That people who died in our world, those little squirrel guys. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, Parisians, I think they were called. We'll go with that. Yeah, the little squirrel guys would. You'd be reincarnated. In this, it was. It was basically the the steampunk version of our yep. world. Yep, pretty much. Except that the main character, the one main character, has the power that she can get possessed by the spirits of people who have died again. I guess in this other mm. world. I guess that's the best way to describe it. So she's actually kind of like a spiritual medium in some ways. Except- yeah, in this in in this alter world that you end up going to if when you die, these little squirrel guys decide to bring you across. Yeah, well, they're about to die. If I remember right, because I did read it just a couple of weeks ago, they don't actually. They say they're grabbing people who are about to die. Like the main characters yeah. were were plucked off a plane that was about to crash. So they're not actually yeah. dead. They're just. They're they're grabbed away at the last second, so no one knows they're gone. Basically, maybe because I'm a few volumes in, and they've never they haven't explained yet what that is. So it's possible that they do die in that other mm, in true. in like our world. That's true. But 
they're they're prevented from from a true death. Like they've they haven't quite. Mm-hmm. They did draw attention to that because there's the speech in the first one where she's talking about how everybody else in the plane is dead now. Mm. Yeah. But they never, they haven't quite explained. And I, I wonder if that's going to be part of the story. Right. Explaining why she gets possessed by people who have died in the other world. Right. Um, so we will put a link to that comic in the show notes, folks, so mm-hmm. that you can go check it out. It's, it's gorgeous. I have to say the art in that thing mm-hmm. is so spectacularly gorgeous. Um, and it's it's a French comic, I believe. Yeah, yeah called Echo. All right, and it's mm-hmm. weird because again, it's 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 this the same theme that you're seeing popping up in a lot of a lot of stuff for some reason recently. I don't, not sure why. I mean, I know that there have been like you know characters obviously popping up or waking up in other worlds is a long staple. Um, from Mark yeah. Twain wrote a story about that, but um, yeah. Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's courting. If anyone's wondering. Um, but mm-hmm. this idea of suddenly reincarnating in another world and then, but having all your, usually from our world and then having all the information in your head from your life here and then working, using that, you know, kind of working that as your advantage is it's a new twist on it, or at least it kind of was 10 years ago. Now it's just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not sure what made huh. them so focused on, but it does work. I mean, it's the ultimate fish out of water scenario. I mean, don't be surprised yeah. if we're seeing a lot of Hollywood movies using or TV series using that trope probably real soon now. Yeah. I can see that being one of those huh. ones that slips over here pretty soon. So, and to yeah. me, that would be a kind of creative procedure. At least that's what I call them. Because in most cases, the character actually is faced with a task that's usually pretty clear from the beginning of carving out a new life, which usually involves solving some problem. Uh, for example, in the case of the spider one, I would assume that it's all right, she's in a dangerous situation. How can she probably uh, use her knowledge to maybe make friends and <laughs> such and find ways to uh, survive even in this super hazardous environment? Um, mm. In the case of... Save the, hmm? save the pig, save the world. Save the pig, save the world. There we go. <laughs> um, maybe save the kobold, save the world. I don't know. What... <laughs> Um, but she'll, but she, you know, probably again. So the characters use this knowledge from outside, and they use it to accomplish some goal in the story. And there's always a clear goal. Like for example, the book, the bookworm story. She's trying to remake. Uh, she spends most of her time trying to reinvent uh, printing and binding. Is actually what she's doing in the first part of the story. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can see what I'm talking about. There's a comic version there's also a print version that people have been translating that's a japanese one i find the japanese mm. ones are generally tend to be very creative like the ones that we're talking about like the spider one spider one the goblin one these are all japanese yeah. ones um the chinese yeah. and the korean ones don't tend to actually go in these weird directions like the japanese do they tend to do things a little yeah. more straight up yeah, well i i'd say the 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 japanese not the correct the chinese and the korean ones Straight up, I'd probably say more traditional mm-hmm. because they do sort of tie into that idea of, of karma and reincarnation. And mm-hmm. they're present, a lot of the ones that I've seen anyway seem to be presented more in that classical kind of mm-hmm. way. Yeah, they are. They absolutely are. And then it, whereas, yeah, the Japanese ones are just like batshit crazy. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, these are cultures that kind of believe in reincarnation to begin with. So that's yeah. not actually a big stretch for any of them to say, okay, you got reincarnated just but for whatever reason, you got to keep your memories from last time. 
and mm-hmm. that's the only hook, right? And that's that's gives you a connection with our world because you're relatable in some way now. And it also sets it up so that you're still that fish out of water that and and it also gives you an advantage at the same time. So it's it's a perfect yeah. setup in a lot of ways. Yeah. All right. And so the final type of major type, I should say, of meta genres that I came up with were relationship manga that usually pop up. Mm. Uh, relationship mangas usually tend to take two forms because you've got to understand something that boys of the 18 to 14 year old set are not really interested in girls very much. And they're not really interested right. in reading stories that are directly about just relationships and people's feelings. You kind right. of have to candy coat it with something else. Girls mm. will read stories about just people having relationships and talking to each other and showing their feelings and all that. Boys aren't interested in that. They're usually more goal-oriented. So, mm-hmm. again, this is on average. I'm not saying every boy or every girl is like that. Some girls may actually very much be goal-oriented. That's true, too. But on average, uh-huh. at least based on the publishing experience of uh, Shonen Jump, um, that usually doesn't quite work out. Uh, it doesn't quite work out so well yeah. if you try to do a straight relationship story with boys. So what they do is they candy-coat it. And there's two different ways you'll see, usually, I find. Um, the first mm. kind is what I call love comedies because even young guys appreciate, you know, comedy, right? They appreciate a right. story where there's like some funny bits and usually some naughty bits and uh, maybe a little bit of touching drama, but not, you know, not too much because no one wants to be seen crying in front of his friends, of course. <laughs> right. So, because um, that's not manly. And so, no. the, the, so there'll be a love comedy and love comedies, you know, they're involved they're usually fairly simple ones, especially for the shonen level. I guess I would qualify yeah. Lum, for example, as a love comedy of this type, uh, Ranma One Half. Um, and okay. those are, again, those are stories where they've got a weird element to them. Uh, Lum's case, for those who are not familiar with Yurisei Atsura, it's a story about a boy who suddenly discovers he's got a new alien girlfriend, whether he wants to or not. <laughs> We've all been We've there. We've all been there, yeah. The crazy, yeah, the, you know, the crazy girlfriend. He's, <laughs> he, he wins a, contest for the for the earth but the this alien princess is is his prize and he doesn't realize that when he wins the contest and so now for the sake of galactic mm-hmm. peace or at least human peace he has to live with this girl and um hijinks and <laughs> kind <Shu>. of. <laughs> well kind of yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> hijinks and sue shall we say it's a it's a it's pretty funny um then there's also mm-hmm. ranma one half um which i believe would still qualify as probably shonen and sort of which is again about similar story about another couple that's forced together. In fact, that's a standard love comedy thing. The main characters will pretty much always be forced to live together in mm-hmm. one form or another, or at least they'll be forced into a very, again, going back to that battle manga formula, I call this the um, arena principle, which is basically that when you're writing a story, you should generally try to make sure your cast are stuck in a relatively small environment. So they're constantly having to interact with each other. Because you have to explain, well, if these people don't like each other, that why don't they just leave? Yeah. And that's what the arena principle is something you have to think about is like, what reasons can I come up with why these characters just can't leave? <laughs> why can't they just right. walk away from each other? Because if, if the answer is they could anytime and they're just not doing it for any good reason, the audience isn't going to buy it. Yeah. And so, so you have these love comedies and 
they generally there are different kinds there's like sentimental ones like orange road for example uh which is just about right. a love triangle between a guy and two girls and all oh, the guy happens to have psychic powers but that's neither here nor there um because mm-hmm. again shonen stuff they like that extra little twist there have been a few others that are just pure romantic ones like there was one called eyes which is written i apostrophe yeah. s that was really big in the 90s and that was a I believe a very straight up, very touching kind of, uh, you know, romance story. But again, it's a romantic comedy. There's still always going to be that comedy element to keep it kind of like lively in some way or another. Yeah. Cause I, I think for your examples, mm-hmm. I think Ranma one half is the, the, uh, the shonen version of right. it. Urusei Yatsura, I don't think is quite a shonen comic. Right. Because it kind of gets back to the quote that, that we, we started oh, this episode okay. with. Okay. And you know where that quote is from? Where? From probably the greatest shonen dramatic series ever. Hokuto Ken? No. Which one? Change Man Ken? G-Fighter. Oh, G-Fighter. No, G-Fighter. Oh, G-Fighter. Okay. Because that was, that was, uh, there was a scene where Domon was arguing with the rest of the team and like one of the, uh, one of the 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 higher up uh, official guys said that to uh, I think it was Rain mm. that was complaining about why they're always arguing. And that was what he said. True men can only express themselves through their fists. There we go. Yep. And, and that's the idea because yeah, for a lot of the shonen stuff, mm. um, there's always that dramatic element because mm-hmm. again, it's 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 always about the feelings of the characters, yes. and they usually put the romantic thing in. Kinda. Well, that's the thing, right? A lot of shonen comics, the female love interest character is usually just there to basically be cheesecake. In other words, to add some, mm-hmm. like, you know, just to have a lovely girl wandering around and to mostly just kind of at, encourage the hero, sort of. Yeah. I mean, they're really just a background element. Like, they really are. They're basically just best supporting cast in most stories. Occasionally, yeah. there'll be a motivator. But oddly enough, not not usually. Because remember, these are written for boys 8 to 14. So the idea of the main character being totally in love with a uh, uh, girl and stuff is often kind of, ew, they're not really that into it yet. <laughs> and so yeah. it's very common for the main character not to have uh, any interest in the opposite sex. Or or at least they have a very pure or very simple interest in the opposite sex. You know, maybe like looking at yeah. a girl's panties. They don't know why, but they those panties are really interesting <laughs> for some fascinating reason. Uh, when the girl is wearing yeah, or, them, of course. And sometimes not. Yeah, or, or looking down somebody's exactly. top. That's a popular. Yeah, exactly. Because that takes me back to Dr. Stone. Right. I got like three pages in and I'm like, this is a Boichi comic. I haven't been staring down anybody's top in two pages. What the hell happened? You obviously didn't look at the color um, front piece to the very first issue, did you? I didn't. I didn't know there was one. Okay. On, <laughs> when you get a chance, go on Manga Fox and look at the very color front piece. And you will know uh-huh. that you're looking at a Boichi comic right away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but actually, this leads perfectly into the other variant of relationship stories that you'll see. Um, because they don't do mm. straight up ones. They do love comedies and they do gang stories, which we mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. And they're not as common. They were mostly an 80s, 90s thing. So they're fairly rare now, at least a pure one. But a gang story yeah. is basically about a group of young guys slowly forming a gang. And I don't usually mean a criminal gang. Usually they're basically forming a social group. 
Um, mm-hmm. Usually it'll start with one character meeting another character, and then they slowly meet another person, and they'll meet another person, and the, together these troubled individuals who usually all have like issues in their lives or something like that will together slowly sort each other's problems out. They'll usually like fight some other gangs or something like that. Maybe or maybe not. It depends. Maybe they're motorcycle guys and they'll race other gangs or whatever. And yeah. they'll basically experience brotherhood and friendship. I mean, yeah. they're basically... Here, it's the Three Musketeers type thing, right? So, you know, all right. for one, one for all. They'll basically learn the meaning of that phrase. And that's what a gang story basically is. And I say that it represents this because gang stories, generally speaking, t- often don't even have a love interest. They literally... There might be some girls there in the background, but they're literally just in the background. They yeah. they don't even bother with them because these are stories about guys bonding with each other and they don't... No no girls are allowed, man. No girls allowed. <laughs> yeah. It, it's kind... That was... Again, that's kind of an older thing. And, and yeah, back in the 80s, they were literally gangs. Yeah, they were, actually. They would be punks and who... Like the one everybody knows, Akira. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Akira is an example of that. Yep. Yeah, it, it's a little more seinen than you'd have. But even then, back in the 80s, a lot of the... Sh- the uh, Even the shonen stuff... Mm-hmm was a little edgier and a little darker and i think i think it's just because Mm -hmm. uh yeah i think prior to to dragon ball z perfecting the formula Mm -hmm. yeah you had more overlap and i think that might be why like say the gang stuff kind of went into remission because it tended to be a little darker and a little heavier Mm. than what we would now call it a shonen book. So when that shonen formula got perfected in the nineties, that kind of went elsewhere. Right. And then it kind of, it kind of petered out. Cause you don't see. Actually, you're not quite right. There is a gang story running in shonen jump right now. In fact, there's one been running for 20 years. It's okay. One piece. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, when I did my analysis of the, uh, the gang story, by the way, for each of these meta genres, I've got like a, you know, like 10 page write-ups about all their details and their tropes <laughs> and everything else in the book. So we're just going over the base, some of the basic ideas. If you want to check it out, check out my book, folks. Um, plug, mm. plug. Um, but <laughs> One Piece, I realized reading it that One Piece is, it's a fighting battle manga gang story is what it is. Because it totally follows yeah. the gang story uh, story structure, which is basically the one two characters meet and they slowly meet other people and slowly form a gang and together they are strong. They're misfits, but together they're stronger can and can kind of uh, overcome the world around them. Yeah, because that's one piece. Yeah, because there's a lot of them that mm-hmm. I think are similar, but I'd be inclined to call it more a menagerie story than mm-hmm. than to get because that was like uh, like your Naruto. Uh, bleach kind of gets a, where you've got like your your team together, but they're not. That no, no. I would argue they're no. Not quite... They are still there to support the main character, though. Yeah, they're, one, they're... one piece is a gang story. It's about the whole yeah. cast. Yeah, like that's. I think. I think. Yeah, you're. I'd consider it's. It's not the menagerie one like you get now. Right. I would say that. Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, it's probably closest to like the old gang comics that you used to get. It, it really is. Um, if you read my like write up about gang stories and such, you'll see it's a gang story. And again, I didn't even realize that when I started doing the analysis of gang stories until I looked back and said, "Oh my crap, this is One Piece." And mm-hmm. it also has to do with the one of the ways that the progression is structured. 
Uh, most shonen yeah. comics have some kind of progression built into them, especially like fighting ones. It's obvious the characters are learning new superpowers and stuff like that and learning fun- funky moves or getting new cards or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the tricks of gang stories is the way they function is the character is picking up new friends. Yeah. And that's where the character's power is growing is the fact that they're picking up new friends. And that's one of yeah. the real ways you can measure a gang story is by the fact that the character, it's about the group that's slowly forming. In this case, Luffy says it right from the beginning. He's going to be the pirate king and he's, he needs to form his pirate crew. And every mm-hmm. single One Piece story arc is literally just about how someone joins the crew. Yeah. If you, if you read them all, every single arc ends with someone joining their crew. So it's really all about how a character is introduced and how they join the crew. There's one or two little exceptions where he plays with that formula a bit, but for the most part, that's how they all end in one form or another. And hmm, okay. so, so there you go. Um, now, there are a few other manga meta genres, but these are kind of what I'd call the more minor ones in the sense that right. they, they tend to be combined with something else rather than kind of stand more on their own. Um, I'll just quickly go through them. There's what I call the transformative teacher stories. Mm. <laughs> um, this is literally exemplified by, for example, great teacher Onizuka. Um, and there's mm-hmm. also Goku Sen, hell teacher Nubei. And most recently there's one called assassination classroom. Yeah. And what these are is basically they're about a, a new weird teacher comes into a classroom, usually a class filled with misfits and teenagers who have troubles in their lives and basically slowly sorts everyone in the class out. Um, mm-hmm. but usually even though they're incredibly weird and wacky in some way, or like a misfit, like great teacher Onizuka, for example, he's a gangster. He's like a biker mm-hmm. gang kid from hell, but he's decided to kind of reform and become a teacher. And he goes to teach at this horrible reform school. And then he begins using his, um, background to start sorting each of the students out. And the way the stories play out, you, one, one key to these things is they're actually a form of procedural mystery. Where what's happening is, is each story is about a troubled student and they're a puzzle to be solved by the teacher. And we're, right. what we're watching is we're watching the student, slow, students of the class slowly get transformed by this teacher who they always hate at the beginning, but by the end of it, they always love him. Yeah, that, that's a genre that we have in North America. Well, yes, that would be, oh, was it? Uh, oh, to Sir, to with, Sir love. with Love. There it is. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. I kept thinking of like Mr. Fibs or something like that. But it's... it's oh, because yeah. there's a billion of there's, them. Yeah. Like that, to that's... Sir With Love. <laughs> oh, there's, there's, there's tons of them. And we do them, yeah. but we don't do them as a series. We do them usually as movies. Um, yeah. There was Welcome Back Cotter. But again, the problem with that is he was a... It was a sitcom, so he, wasn't, he couldn't really transform. He couldn't really change them. If I remember right, mm-hmm. because they were you didn't want them to change because the, you know, these characters yeah. are supposed to stay the same. So, because we like episodic TV, we don't do transformative teachers properly, except as movies. But we do have it. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a like bajillions of them. So remember, so imagine a story like that, except that every story, every arc, every story arc of the story is about a different student and how the character, that weird teacher, transforms their life in some way. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, usually there's actually one of the students who is usually the biggest doubter of them all plays kind of like the sidekick to the weird teacher. And it's often from their point of view. And we're watching it go through. Um, great teacher Ogunizuka, also known as GTO or uh, my favorite is Goku-sen, which is kind of the female version of great teacher Onizuka where she's like a mafia princess. Well, Yakuza princess. And she, mm-hmm. but she just wants to be a school teacher. I don't know. Have you ever seen Goku-sen? 
I think I have a while ago. Um, there's an animated version of it, and there was a live action version of it, which I really loved. And again, it's, okay. it's she basically, yeah, she uses her resources to help sort some of her students out. But she's really passionate. And she loves her students, but they don't realize that she's basically the queen of hell. Um, and mm-hmm. it's it, it, and yeah, it's it's actually pretty cool. That plays that well. Um, the next uh, type of uh, minor meta genre, again, it tends to be, this one tends to be mixed with other things usually, is harem mm-hmm. stories. Where yeah. we're going to see a character that's introduced. Now, a harem story, generally speaking, there's a catch with this one. These are almost seinen stories. They actually lean almost more towards the seinen side than the shonen side. But sometimes you will see them in shonen, so that's why I include it in the book. Um, yeah. A harem story, for those who are not familiar, is a story where a, a male lead character ends up slowly collecting girlfriends, usually a whole bunch of them, and who all mm-hmm. he helps them uh, with their lives in one form or another, and they start hanging out with him. And it's kind of like the it's kind of like a gang story, except instead of making buddies, you end up with a whole bunch of wives instead, and all of them are competing mm-hmm. to be his quote unquote number one and his real wife in one form or another. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually each story is going to be almost um, uh, is some kind of not exactly mystery, but it's something where he basically um, he helps the girl in some way. And so he because he helps that girl, she decides she becomes interested in him and she usually ends up living with him or moving in near someplace close to him and becoming part of his life. And then another one that happens to and, you know, he just slowly keeps building them up. Oh, um, my. Like, yeah, that's the. the- I was going to say, this is another one that we actually have in North America. We do? Yeah. Okay, give me an example. Uh, the easiest way to explain it is Archie. It's Archie. Well, wait a sec, though. Archie only has technically two girlfriends, maybe three at most, if you eh, count Cherry Blossom. Okay. No, because if, if, if you've read like sure. any of the Archie comics mm-hmm. from, like say, the 60s to now... Right. No, any any time there there's like a new girl in Riverdale, she runs into Archie and always falls for him. And then the rivalry between like him and Reggie mm-hmm. to win her over, it always, 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 always. I read a lot of Archie comics. I don't quite remember it playing out that way. It usually is still just Betty and Veronica, and occasionally like Cheryl Blossom. Sorry, not Sherry Blossom, but Cheryl Blossom. And there was one or two others that were interested, but they never played a, a big role like uh, Betty and Veronica do. It mostly is just a battle yeah, between but, them. Yeah, but that's because the rest of them tend to disappear. Oh, there is that. Where is it a proper... In, into that landfill yeah, exactly. outside of uh, <laughs> well, that, Riverdale. That would be the new Riverdale series on the CW, <laughs> uh, which is which is a which is a dramatic, dark murder mystery type series. So yes, that, that would actually be that mm-hmm. one. Um, yes, imagine if every girl that fell for Archie basically moved in like to his neighborhood and was constantly chasing him around or trying to move in with him or stuff like that. So we had Betty, Veronica, Cheryl, and like five or six others by the end trying to move in with him. That's actually a harem story. At least a pure mm-hmm. one anyway. Um, the trick is in shonen ones, what you'll usually get is what's called a kind of a, not a mixed, kind of, I don't want to call it a mixed harem story, but a kind of a partial harem story where the main mm-hmm. character will start picking up a whole bunch of girlfriends that will follow him around. Or, but he's not actually usually interested in any of them romantically exactly. They just keep mm-hmm. following him because they like him, but he's kind of oblivious to them usually. And yeah. that's that's usually how it goes. Some version of that. Um, there's one called uh, Gate, which is a um, one about a soldier who goes off to another land, 
uh, go, ends up they find a gate to a fantasy world opens in Tokyo and so they send an army unit through it's actually a pretty cool mm-hmm. story it's actually it's basically J- uh, Japanese self-defense force porn is what it is and I mean porn not <laughs> in the sexual sense but in the look at the really cool stuff sense Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, but he ends up meeting all these like fantasy. He basically he meets a, a, a wizard girl, a, a elf girl. A, there's a whole bunch of them, and they all start following him around and basically become his team. And so right. that's an example of what I'm talking about. He doesn't directly have a romantic relationship with them, but he's got them around him anyway. And um, mm-hmm. so that's an example of like a partial harem story where there's this exploration element and everything, an action element, but there's also kind of a harem element that's happening. And so it's kind of slipped in. Mm-hmm. Another uh, genre, just quickly to go through them, there's only one or two more, um, that's very, very popular is what I call the hunted hero genre. Okay. The hunted hero genre is a, here, I can give you a, a two classic examples, three, and you'll understand what I'm saying. Okay. Space Cruiser Yamato, okay. Macross, and Mobile Suit Gundam. Oh, okay. Now you got it. All right. So, yeah. we, so we've got their stories usually where the character and usually his friends and special vehicles or whatever are basically being pursued around by some large force that's trying to hunt them down, and. Mm-hmm. In the process of being chased around by this large enemy, they slowly build allies, they slowly get stronger, they slowly get more powerful, until they're eventually, at the end of the story, able to turn around, work with their enemies, and defeat whatever the enemy is that's been chasing them all along. And so that's why I call them hunted hero stories. Because usually they're, yeah, they're being hunted by some larger force, or some other force, one kind or another. Even, there are examples, uh, Samurai Jack, for example, in the American stuff, is that. It's a hunted hero story. Uh, The new Voltron is, it's running on uh, Netflix, is a hunted hero story. You can think of, they're often, think of them as, you know, a small band of rebels against the Empire. That's a hunted hero story, Mm -hmm. usually. If the Empire is chasing them around, that is. And actually, new Star Wars Rebels series that's just running, the animated one, that's a hunted hero story, Mm -hmm. too. Um, hmm. so these are very common, oddly enough, in science fiction for some reason. Japanese science fiction stories are very often hunted hero stories, as I'd call them. Right. Um, uh, I guess it's, it's just a really good trope. It kind of works well. There's always an evil empire chasing them around and they yeah. slowly have to, you know, build the parts for their machine or get, get better and get skilled and whatever else. And the individual stories often play out as a kind of battle manga with the characters facing new and ever more powerful foes as they work their way to the top. So the enemy is constantly sending new enemies to try to catch them, new lieutenants. And they have to right. uh, defeat these new lieutenants again and again until as they get more and more powerful. And eventually they can turn on the enemy and face the great emperor down. And yeah, it's Star <laughs> Wars. Yeah, it's it's Star right. Wars. You, I probably should have just said that from the beginning. Um, <laughs> I get the hunted hero genre actually from the, from, believe it or not, from the legend of the Japanese story Yoshitsune, okay, um, oh, okay, who was the who's the original classic Japanese hunted hero. Uh, Kurosawa did a movie about him called The Man Who Tread the Tiger's Tail. Uh, for those who mm. aren't familiar, Yoshitsune was a semi-legendary samurai. He was a real person though, who lived give or take about about eight hundred years ago. Um, he helped his brother Yoritomo basically conquer Japan and establish the first shogunate in Japan. Okay, mm-hmm. so after he helped his brother, he'd actually they had the brothers had lived separately. As Yoshitsune had been raised up in the mountains 
for various reasons. You'd have to read history to understand why he comes down. So he's really strong and powerful and he's like really capable. And some people attribute like him having superpowers almost. So he and his buddies come down from the mountains. They help it. They help Yoritomo establish the shogunate. And the very first thing that happens is when, as soon as this great new Japanese empire is established, Yoritomo's other lieutenants basically say, cause they're jealous. They basically say, you know, Yoshitsune is so powerful. He's going to overthrow you if you leave him around. And Yoritomo, being the paranoid um, idiot that he is, says, you know, you're right. I should get rid of my brother. And so, and, but his brother hears about this. And so his brother goes on the run. Yoshitsune goes on the run, being chased by what's basically the new shogun that, that he helped establish. <laughs> and hmm. um, so I consider that kind of the first Japanese hunted hero story. There may be another earlier legend that goes with it. And, um, so the, and so this is where, and so he gets chased all over Japan and, uh, uh unlike the anime manga versions, spoiler, it does not end well. <laughs> Although it depends on which end you believe, because there's actually several possible endings. We don't know how it really turned out. We know how historians mm-hmm. think it turned out, but there are actually a few legendary versions of it uh, that were happier endings for poor Yoshitsune. So, hmm. yeah. Um, and then the last... Second last, sorry, there's two more. The second last uh, meta genre that's worth noting is, and again, one that's not very popular anymore, but it still pops up from time to time, mm-hmm. is what I call the monster fighter genre. And oh, okay. this is Sentai, basically. Sentai, Kamen Rider, uh, Bao, Sailor Moon. I mean, there's a, the, you know, once upon a time, even technically Messenger Z, they did a ton of these. Yeah. Man, Eight Man, Giant Robo. You know, these are the ones where a hero with, uh, or a group of heroes get together and, you know, fight monsters of the week, basically. Or they fight a series of monsters that are usually, uh, represent a villain that's trying to take over the world or something like that. Right. And, you know, that's the monster fighters meta genre. Again, not really popular anymore, except in Sentai live action stuff. Like, you won't really see that in comic books almost at all. But back in the 80s and Hmm. 70s, you would see it, but not anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the very last uh, meta genre that I identified was gag manga, of course, mm, okay. because th- this is the Yonkoma or four panel gag manga that tend to run. Um, again, I don't talk a lot about them because they're fairly straightforward, but you know, they're the Japanese version of the comic strip basically. And there's a few standards yeah. that pop up. So I thought I'd make a note about them. Um, sometimes. Oh, actually I should say. You will see them in modern shonen manga. They almost use them as filler. Um, sometimes yeah. they'll do uh, little gog mangas at the end of regular stories. So there'll be a chapter of Naruto, for example. And then there'll be one page just like one or two four-panel gag manga, basically. that are just the main character jokes about the main characters of the story or something like that. And so they'll yeah, throw they, those they in. They do that. Mm-hmm. The Tankobans usually have a couple pages of those at the end. I, yeah, I often think that they include those kind of as an extra bonus material for the people yeah. who buy the Tankobon. I don't think they're part of the original, you know, published material. No, you don't. Well, yeah, not very, very often. It, occasionally they do, or what you'll get is mm-hmm. uh, you see in a Tankobon as well that I think draws from that. They'll do like the chapter breaks will have like a one or a two panel gag or like a comedic illustration or something relating to the last chapter. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yep, they'll do something like that. But they mm-hmm. often, they usually don't stand on their own in the manga. Although I have seen one. There's one that I've been reading called Aho Girl, 
which basically means like mm-hmm. idiot girl. And it's one that you can look it up. Um, there's translation, English translations of it kicking around. And it's one that's, I don't know, it's been running in a shonen one. I think it, it's basically a romantic comedy about this really, really stupid girl. Mm-hmm. Who's like determined to like win the love of the boy next door. Except the boy next door find, just finds her freaking annoying because she's just so dumb. And, uh-huh. um, and so, I mean, when I say dumb, I mean, she's the kind of person who, if she, and this is an actual story, so I'll give, this will give you an example. So, like, <laughs> there's a point where one of her, she's talking with one of her friends, okay? And her friend, mm-hmm. you know, her friend is so bored, he just gets up and leaves. And the guy, and a dog wanders over and sits where her friend was. And she turns around in the middle of her, you know, speech to tell her friend that she loves him and sees he's the dog. But instead of being like, upset that her friend left, she thinks her friend has turned into the dog, uh-huh. and like is now freaking out about how that how how she can turn him back into a human and everything <laughs> like that. And it's like, ah. Uh... And and the thing is, there's no magic in the story or anything like that. She just is that dumb that she's like thinks mm. stuff like that. Anyway, silly stuff like that. So that'll give you an idea. Um, the four panel gag manga are very they're comic <laughs> strips. If you've read a, com- a newspaper yeah. comic like peanuts or anything else you know what they are that's exactly garfield yeah yeah, that kind of thing um they have an extra panel which lets them give them a little more breathing room in some ways for to develop the story as much as you can in four panels but it gives you more than (laughs) so it gives them a little more to work with uh but yeah you know that's generally it and (laughs) and actually i should identify something else that's actually gives me a good opportunity in fact to describe something else i observed about japanese comics is that they use a very different story structure that Western ones do. Mm-hmm. Um, the main thing, the main difference really between the story structure that they use and the ones that we use is, well, they use what's called a story structure called the Kisho Tenketsu, or, which is each part of that weird word that you just heard me say um, is actually each syllable represents a different part. So I'll break it down. Um, ki means introduction. Show means development. Ten means like twist or turn, and and ket, and ketsu basically means um, like resolution. Okay, and what I did is in the book, I just I realized that's really hard for people to remember. So I sat down and I thought about it, and I basically translated it like this. I actually refer to it as the idea structure. Okay, just to simplify mm-hmm. things. So idea, introduction, development, event, apex. Um, mm. I used Apex because I couldn't come up with a better word that started with A <laughs> to make the, to make the whole idea acronym work. Um, I confess, <laughs> folks, that's that's why I'd say. But Apex actually does work. It really does work, and I'll tell you why. Um, mm-hmm. As you can probably guess, how the different parts go. The int- the introduction introduces the characters, sets up the situation. The development basically the characters start on their journey, whatever that journey is, whatever they're trying to accomplish. Event is basically stuff happens. And the key with events is stuff happens that will generate some kind of reaction from the reader, not the, not the characters. Now, stuff can happen to the mm-hmm. characters, but the key is it's generating reaction from the reader. Like it's making them feel curious or making them feel happy or sad or whatever. Basically, stuff happens that's interesting to the character as they're trying to accomplish whatever their goal is or whatever they're trying to do. And eventually, things reach their apex where everything comes together and the situation is resolved. Okay, and so that's the idea structure, which is my transliteration of the Tisho Tenketsu structure that the Japanese use. 
And I spend this, that's the short version. I spend like a dozen pages breaking it down and what happens in each step <laughs> and everything like that, because I'm making it very simple, but I do lay it out uh, in my book. For example, I lay out all the different, the, like the different kinds of events and how it can all come together and everything. I try to be fairly um, detailed about the thing. I try to try fairly comprehensive because I want the audience to understand, you know, exactly how this all works and what's, what's involved. And, but at its heart, it's really, mm. really simple. It's a super simple story structure. You know, you introduce right. the problem, the characters try to solve the problem, the stuff happens and eventually they get a result. Ta-da. Okay. Mm. And that's pretty much what any story is, right? I mean, even the standard story structure we use, the three-act structure in the West, is introduction, stuff happens, result. I mean, that's really right. what it is. Okay? The Japanese pretty much just take that introduction phase and break it into the true introduction, introduce the characters, and the development phase, which is basically the characters um, start trying to accomplish their goal and we do a bunch of setup where we introduce the challenges, we introduce the obstacles, we introduce the opposition, we introduce the different things that are going to come to challenge the character later on that they're going to deal with in the event phase. And mm -hmm. this is actually how the Japanese write it. And I didn't, you know, and I, this is based on not only my own observations, but also actual research. Like there's a book called Manga in Theory and Practice by Hirohiko Araki, who is the creator of the manga Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And mm -hmm. um, I read his book and he talks about this, among other things. I knew this already, but he talks about in his book about how this is the standard story structure that manga use. Pretty much all manga use from some version of this. And... Now, some of you, just to pause here, might have heard some tale. There's a story floating around that the Kisho Tengetsu structure, this structure, is actually a story without conflict. Like, you'll hear this referred to by reverent uh, story nerds as, oh, it's this mysterious Japanese story structure that has, like, <laughs> characters don't conflict with each other. Everyone lives in peace. And it's just about interesting story, you know, events happen and stuff. And they're half right. In the sense that mm. it's a story structure where you don't have to have anything violent or conflict-based happen. But you can if you want to. Okay? Mm. That's the thing. It's not baked into the structure. Like, the way Americans usually use their story structure, the three-act structure, the American version of it has a bunch of conflict built into it. Uh, if you, You'd have to go read more about the three-act structure. But if you do read especially the version that Hollywood uses actually has a, things like called a pinch point and false victories and and a low point where the character feels defeated and then has to like stand back up again and like fight for what they believe in and there's a whole reason for that that we can talk about in another podcast i'm not going to go into it now but yeah. but the american react hollywood structure generally has a conflict built into it it pretty much requires the character to be in conflict with someone or something Whereas the hmm. Kisho Tenketsu idea structure doesn't. It just requires interesting stuff to happen. But, and I give this example in my book, okay? So for example, you could do a, a, a Kisho Tenketsu structure where it's literally about a character cleaning their house, okay? And maybe as the character is cleaning their house, that's their goal. The character's whole goal is cleaning the house. And that's all the character does in the whole story. But as they're cleaning their house... The audience is watching or seeing that, for example, she lifts up a vase. And why is there a finger under that vase? And then she lifts up and, you know, she's, she's cleaning this part. And there's another body part over there. And then eventually you come to realize that you're in the house of, like, some, like, werewolf or something like that. And so the character literally only cleans their house. 
There's no conflict mm. there in the sense that that's that's. But the audience is seeing all these like events happen. It's like holy crap, look at that! Holy crap, look at that! That's so weird! Oh my god, look at that thing! And but those are the ways that the audience is reacting. Like you're giving the audience right. things to react to. You're not requiring that the character has this conflict about oh my god what should i do should i lift that up or should i be a werewolf or should i not or should i eat people or not stuff (laughs) like that that would be the american version whereas the japanese one will just be about the characters um going about their life or could be i've never read a manga that just did this i don't think maybe i have i've read so many over the years it's hard to tell but Mm. this that'll give you an idea about what i mean by when i say it's a character it's a Plot structure without conflict. Okay? You know what's weird about that, though? As kind of uh, an odd step to the left. Right, yeah. We write stories like that, too, but we're not taught to think of, of stories in that term because... What we, we tend to, the, 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 the definition of, of type of story, and I forget the technical term for this, mm-hmm. that we're taught here in like the the west in north america Mm -hmm. to categorize your stories in terms of the conflict Mm -hmm. and the conflict is the old man versus man man versus nature man versus self thanks Aristotle. yep yeah and and we're taught to frame the story off as a conflict right from the beginning even though we don't necessarily like we write that kind of story like like the the japanese style too Mm -hmm. But we tend not to envision how we do things in those terms. Yes. That's really really kind of odd. Yep. It is, actually. Yeah, it is. And that's one of the things I found fascinating about writing this book and researching it, but coming to understand exactly how the idea structure, the Kisho Niketsu structure works. And in understanding that, it's actually given me a new understanding of how the American stuff works as well. Like, I can now see the conflict base to the American structure. I knew it was there before, but it's truly helped me understand it by giving me something to compare with. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just the, it's just a very different way of uh, looking at story. And um, right. yeah, I, yeah. That, so, so that's one of been, been one of the joys actually of doing this project. And one of the things I actually really found fascinating about it. And I had to spend a lot of time thinking about it. I had, I went through a lot of revisions thinking about exactly how it all works and then I would do more research and take more notes and come up with, if anything, the section about plot in the book, which is mostly about the structure and such, was probably the hardest thing to write in this entire book and took the most work out of all of it. Even though it's just one chapter of about 22 pages, it still took a lot of work to write because I had to not just think about how the structure works, but also come up with ways to explain it to a Western audience so that they would hopefully understand it. And that's why right. I spend so much time breaking it down and working with it and giving examples, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, I'll give you another example. There's actually one of my, I, I, this is odd, but it's an actual comic. It's called uh, Yuru Camp. And mm-hmm. um, it's one of my favorite manga that I'm reading right now, one of my favorite translated manga. And I will tell you, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but I will tell you what it's about. It is about a couple of high school girls who are, have competing ideas about off-season camping. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the, that's the whole concept of the... And the one girl, <coughs> one high school girl, thinks that it's best that camping be done with your friends, and the other high school girl thinks that camping is the best done as a solo competition, as just a, not competition, but as something you do by yourself. 
And it's best done solo. Now, this is off-season <laughs> camping, which means going up into the mountains when it's cold and wet and making a little campsite and just sitting there around a fire and enjoying yourself and, and cooking food and, like, sleeping and going to and seeing beautiful sights. That's what the whole thing is uh-huh. about. There is zero <laughs> conflict in the whole thing. In fact, the whole the only conflict is is that there's a there is a very very slight and subtle philosophical difference between these two girls who are friends. They kind of meet at the beginning in the first chapter. They meet and then they're both having their own camping experiences and they're kind of comparing them with each other. But neither one is actively <laughs> challenging the other one. Just both of them have different ideas about camping, about correction, uh-huh. off season camping. Okay. <laughs> And like the most recent one was one of the girls got a um, got this little fold out stove that you can take it turns into folds down to a book, but apparently you can fold it out. It turns into a little uh, stove that you can take with you for camping. You can put wood in it mm-hmm. and it turns into a little and you can cook meat on top of it and stuff. And the whole chapter was pretty much about how about the potential ways she could just use this this little device. <laughs> And talking with another character about it. It's like, oh, we could do this with it. And we could do that with it. And you know something, though? It's so damn beautiful and charming that I can't stop reading this thing. (laughs) It's kind of like the golf one, except it's just a different approach. And yet it's one of those things that I have almost never seen anyone not Japanese write. Like, it's something Uh that's just so utterly unique. But it exemplifies the whole Kishotenketsu ethos. Where there's this I where there's this emphasis just on yeah stuff just happens but as long as it's interesting to the reader and presented in an interesting way it's all good man and um, <laughs> and you know of course it has beautiful artwork to accomplish it so that's one of the things that is the key with the Japanese comic often some of the when I say event of course and I said says I said is events are about gener- making the reader feel something that actually mm-hmm. also can be the art doing it too. It doesn't just have to yeah. be a story event. It can also be the artist presented in a beautiful way, like a beautiful shot of something. That's an event too, because the reader sees that shot of the guy with his spatula pointing across the kitchen at his opponent or something like that and thinks, wow, that looks pretty cool. Congratulations, that's an event. Okay? Right. You know, events can come in many forms. I refer to it as an event because it's something that uh, something that happens that causes a reaction from the reader in some way, whether it's emotional or intellectual or whatever. Um, and I go, again, I go to that more detail in the book. And mm-hmm. um, so that's a, just a different way of constructing stories. And I find it fascinating, actually. I mean, now I truly understand how the Japanese kind of put their stuff together and why it does feel differently than the American stuff does. Right. And, um, yeah, it's, so putting together this book, I have to say, has been a great experience overall. I mean, it's taken Mm -hmm. me almost a year of my life and in, in focus (laughs) as a book, it's taken me about six months of my life, but, uh, no, actually, I mean, it's been a truly rewarding experience that in the sense that I've learned so much about storytelling and different ways to approach characters and drama. It made me think a lot more about the relationship between the audience and the, um, between the audience and the story and how they interact with each other. I mean, something people forget is, is that a story is a partnership. It's all about knowing what's in your audience's heads and then taking that and working with your audience to produce a reaction. If your audience mm-hmm. is, if you don't understand your audience, you're not going to be able to get them to react properly. And it's going to be very hard to actually tell them a satisfying story. 
Like you need to right. know what your audience is going to get out of this story. Are they going to get like a new perspective that they haven't seen before? Are they going to learn some skills? Are they going to learn some knowledge? Are they going to um, get uh, something new? Are they going to see something new that they've never seen before? Or is it just going to be about making them feel something or emotion? You know, what are you going to be giving your audience? And that's really important. I mean, that's important to know. And if you don't don't know how to connect that with your audience and give your audience what's going to satisfy them and what they want, you're not going to be a very good storyteller. Yeah. And so that was a big part of it. And thinking about setting in different ways. And I could, I could go on. I mean, the book itself is... <laughs> the book itself is not short. I mean, it came out a little... The great irony is when I wrote, started writing this thing, I thought, oh, you know, it'll be about... 30 maybe 40 pages or something like that it'll be it'll be fine <laughs> um it's 300 pages folks <laughs> 302 the, actually depending on which version it run, depending on which version you're looking at and by 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 which i mean different compiling of it so for space and everything like that it, it, there's a version that's 300 and then there's a version that's mm. 310 depending on which ebook version but they're all <laughs> the same content it's just the way it's formatted it, it comes out differently right. sometimes depending on whether you're looking at a pdf or a doc file or whatever. Um, but yeah, mm. but at least it's, it's about 300 pages, give or take of, uh, of pretty much everything that I've, that I could. I mean, when I wrote it, you know, originally I just started as like, well, here are the tropes for the different Japanese comics. And then I thought, well, wait a moment. What if someone who doesn't know how to write reads this? And so I started write, writing how to write. <laughs> and that ended up taking up, you know, at least half the book. So half of it is me as a script writing teacher because I've been teaching script writing for about six years now and just a writer and everything going through and conveying a lot of my knowledge and conveying a lot of what I've learned from Don. You, Don, I've learned a lot from you and there's a lot of uh, your ideas and your thoughts are in this book as well. Um, and uh, our mutual friend Chad, you know, had a lot of conversations mm-hmm. with him and some, some ideas that Chad has presented and other things are also in this book. I've you know thought about them and uh, given my take on them, and I generally tried to create the book that would cover almost everything I could think of for a new writer, but also an experienced writer could get something from it, and almost anyone can in some way form. And if you just want to learn about Japanese comics and everything, well, I got you covered for that too. Um, <laughs> I kind of cover a little bit of everything. I mean, I even have a sample manga in the back where I use take everything that I put together. And give an ex- example, you know, a original quote unquote manga that I've uh, put together. It's about ninjas um, that uh, <laughs> I put together to show how, you know, what, how you would put together a fighting manga with characters and everything else. And mm-hmm. I've got chapters on how to like use all of this material knowledge and how to use it to, to assemble something like what goes in the sample section and everything else. So, uh, and finally, I top it off with just comments about uh, like the comic industries and you know how to get your stuff published and how to uh, what to do with all this stuff. Because of course, I wrote this not just for comic artists, but also for anyone who wants to write write these types of stories or anything like this. And now that was a bit tricky, and I did that. I know Don may not agree <laughs> with this, but and I do say that right at the beginning of the book. I tell people straight up front that I'm not an artist, right? And I realized that mm-hmm. writing comics, half of it is about understanding art and how, how to convey your story through art. But the core story stuff can still be looked at separately from the artwork itself. But if you truly mm-hmm. want to be a great comic artist, you do have to actually understand the artistic side also. And right. I do say that right in my introduction, like 
this book is meant to more be a companion piece to something like, say, Scott McCloud's Making Comics, for example, or Eisner's Comics and Sequential Art. If you want the art side and to truly understand how to integrate it, that you kind of should also read those books as well. You know, I don't make it. And if if that's what people are, if, if you're just looking for the art stuff, this is not the book for you. And I actually have a mm. note right at the beginning that says that. And I'll tell anyone who's reading that, that that's, this is not the art book, but it's the book that understands it's the art. It's the writing book and the philosophy book and everything else that's except for the art book, basically. Yeah, because you did something with this book that I don't think anyone else has ever done. Oh, God, I hope so. What is it? <laughs> you wrote a book mm-hmm. about writing comics. Right. Okay. No, Nobody talks about writing comics. They don't? It's, it's always, here's how the art works. Well, that that's great, but that's half of the story. Uh, and and you're right actually i mean i read a number mm-hmm. of books about writing comics but they're all more art focused than story focused yep and the problem with that cuz i'm no matter what your 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 art form is mm-hmm. i'm a firm believer that you have to put the work into the theory mm-hmm. you have to have under it's not just the mechanical skill you don't just learn here's how to write save the cat you know you don't just learn here's how to lay panels out mm-hmm. you know comics and sequential art you have to kind of have that theory why do we do this why does this work why does this turn out like this if i wanted to do this how does that work mm. and what you've done by writing a book about writing comics which nobody's done before you've done that theory right and i i think that's the 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 big value of your book mm. is that you've got all the underpinning ideas like even though you're talking about a very specific genre mm. how that specific genre works is your in because a lot of the principles and how you outline they do this because of this you can if if you're on the ball you can extrapolate that mm. into other things yes well that's my intent like, yeah yeah, this this is the book on the theory of how comic books work through specifically shonen style comics. Mm-hmm. Yep, I would I would agree with that statement. I I'm going to accept your I'm going to accept your praise and your comments. I have no problems <laughs> with this, um, and mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I was, I guess, in the end, trying to accomplish. Right? I mean, I I wrote this as a book that I you know, want to share you know, my knowledge that I put together for, with other writers so that they could hopefully make use of it and could hopefully write their own stories. I mean, obviously that's what it's intended for. And mm-hmm. I've met so many artists. In fact, I meet them all the time. People who are like, say, I love to draw comics, but I suck at stories. Like over and mm-hmm. over again, I've been asked by many, many artists actually like, can you, can you help me by writing stories? And my answer is generally always, uh, no, sorry, too busy. Um, it's not, it's, <laughs> and there are many reasons, but usually I really am. Usually I really am too busy, actually. That's the, I, I, I have done it a few times. I've actually worked with a few artists and I've been, had, it's been a great experience, but usually I'm too busy working on other things or doing other things. But, but the thing is, this in part is my book for them. Like, you know, my book where I say, okay, well, here's how it's done. So you can write your own stories. I mean, even Scott McCloud's Making Comics, I would say that is one of its flaws. It's still more mm-hmm. focused on the art side of it than the actual story theory side of it. That's its. Yeah. That's what keeps it from being an otherwise perfect book on the topic. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, but yes, I will. I will accept your high praise very happily. Mm. And yeah, it's been a great experience. It really has. I mean, I've also uh, I've just spent the last couple of weeks uh, getting it formatted for printing. Um, <laughs> yes, as I t- done laughing because I told him earlier about my experiences. But yes, getting this printed is proved to be a l- little bit tricky. And I've learned, folks, that if you decide to ever put your book to print, for God's sake, do it as a PDF. Don't try to submit it as a Microsoft Word doc file. Even though they offic- they'll tell you they can accept it, just don't do it, man. Just don't do it. Mm-hmm. You will get endless revisions sent back basically saying, you know, that uh, basically, well, this doesn't work anymore. This quite doesn't quite fit or whatever. No, just send it as a PDF. They can handle it. It will it will look exactly like you want it to and like they want it to. Just do it. Just, just do it that way. <laughs> That's all I have to say on the subject. Um, and... Yeah, and so I know a little you know, bit about marketing. I mean, you know, at heart, this is a fairly niche book. I don't ever expect to really sell a lot of copies of it. Um, but I'm hoping that the copies that I do sell, you know, are appreciated by, you know, a few people like anyone else, really. You know, it's just, it's a nonfiction, labor of love kind of book. You know, if if it doesn't sell that many copies, okay with that. You know, I wrote a book that I enjoyed writing and that I hope some people get something out of. And if lots of people read it, that's awesome, too. I'm kind of okay either way, as long as mm. I just kind of contributed to the you know the general pool of knowledge of the subject out there. That's mm. my take on the whole thing, because I'm a teacher <laughs> through and through. That's uh, that's just how I am, and I hopefully I've put a lot of my you know teaching approach and teaching knowledge and my teaching way teacher's way of explaining stuff to my students into this book, and I think that that will hopefully help make it easy to understand. Um, I have read mm-hmm. some other books about writing in various parts. I've read a lot of books about writing, actually. And one of the problems that a lot of them run into is a lot of them are very academic. And they don't. They either yeah. are too shallow, because they try to be too kind of hip and easy to understand, or from my perspective anyway, or they often are too deep and too academic, in which place they're using lots of language that makes them hard to understand. And I've tried to kind of mm-hmm. veer towards trying to make my book as easy to understand as possible. And I maybe haven't gone into as much depth in some things as I could, but the truth is, is that there are certain points where if I have to choose between depth and readability and understandability, I'll choose readability and understandability over depth sometimes. That's just the way it is. Right. And, you know, so there are, there are always sacrifices whenever you're writing any book. And my final mm-hmm. thought on the subject uh, is two final thoughts. One, if you do write a book and submit it to Amazon, use Amazon marketing because that's actually, it's very cheap and it's actually a really good way to get your book out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can explain that in another show we do about like, you know, book doing ebook publishing or something like that. I'll explain what that means. But yeah, look into Amazon marketing. It's really handy. And the other thing is, for God's sake, if you do want to do manga, do it on your own and don't do it as part of the Japanese comic industry. If you don't don't try to get into the actual <laughs> Japanese comic industry because it is literally a sweatshop from hell. And, you know, we went mm. back. You know, I made that comment about Murata being like a you know master artist and everything, like just pumping out you know One Punch Man, and that's true. But at the same time, he's got a set of assistants who I'm sure are literally worked to the bone to try to keep up with him. Um, mm. It's not you're not you're not doing it alone, and the industry requires a whole apprenticeship system and everything else like i mean if you really want to understand it go read bakuman which of course is a comic about doing comics in japan and even and here's the thing i want you to understand in bakuman okay it's romanticized 
you know, is a romanticized version of what it's like to work in the Japanese comic industry. It's about two guys get together, they decide to become major comic artists, and they work their way up the system. It's an activity manga is what it is. And in Bakuman, the main characters nearly die of overwork several times during the story, <laughs> okay? And that's... I was going to hmm? say, it's romanticized. The one guy has to have an emergency operation because of stress or he'll die. But that's my point. It's still the romanticized version. <laughs> it's still the freaking romanticized version and they nearly die of stress and overwork. And that's the, that's the nice version. Like, really? I mean, unless you're actual Japanese, you probably don't want to try to get into the actual manga industry. I really do not recommend mm. it. Um, you can try. Have fun. However, I will also say that uh, my, you know, this is just publishing advice that I came across. Right now, I mean, the American webcomic, as in kind of self-published webcomic industry, is still really growing. It's like uh, Amazon has not too recently introduced a, a whole e-publishing system for comics. Like you can release like graphic novels and everything through Amazon, like through the web, electronic ones now. And make money doing it. I mean, there's also drive-through comics. There's lots of places where you can turn your you can turn your comics into basically PDF collections, and you can put them up, and they'll sell them and promote them like everything else. And it's becoming quite a big market. So if you want to actually mm -hmm. do comics, my advice these days is do web comics. Basically, do web comics, earn yeah. your stripes, and get your stuff out there. And then once you once you're high enough. Um, publish them yourself or work with a small press company because the main American companies like Marvel and DC are basically dying. So just stay the hell away from them mm. unless you really want, unless you're feeling really masochistic, don't go near them. That's my actual advice. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a uh, probably sound advice, at least at the uh, time yeah, of recording. Exactly, as, as of this point. Oh, one last thing though. If you do want to just write prose, if you want to use some of this stuff to write your, your, your epic battle manga, you know, series, um, but as a you know, prose fiction, you know, just general fiction, I would recommend uh, Wattpad because Wattpad's actually doing some really interesting stuff with um, – Wattpad is an app and website which has, I've heard, roughly 30 million users um, and, is mo and hmm. anyone can publish on it and put stuff on it. And it's also got a social media aspect to it. Plus, you can actually make money from the advertising that's connected with your stories. So if your stories get read a lot, you actually make money from it. So they've actually managed to monetize like story publishing and such. Maybe not a lot of money, depending on again how people you know pay attention to your story. But for some people, actually a lot. Apparently, there's one woman who got like 1.5 billion reads on her one story. Now it's a wow. novel. Remember when I say reads, that means every chapter would count as one read. So when you've got 30 million people and you've got, but anyway, so that's how it could get into the billions, but still that's incredible. I can't, can't imagine how much money she must've made from advertising. If it was done back then, I heard a bunch of big publishers mm -hmm. from the regular came and came and scooped her up and offered her multi-million dollar deals. I mean, so right. yeah, Wattpad's kind of the place to be right now. If you want to do the web fiction thing and it's kind of exploding there's another one called hooked apparently that's quite popular right now but again we can do a whole show on like e-publishing and that another time um the key point yeah. is go out and buy my book i mean <clears throat> sorry um if you were <laughs> you know, if you were if you are so inclined and you're interested in like you know you know learning about shonen manga and more about how manga is written and everything else and a little bit about japanese culture and comics theory and everything you might consider taking a look at my book that's subtle. <laughs> Is that subtle enough? I mean, so I'm trying to. I was trying to do that yeah, in the most no. Japanese way possible. 
<laughs> no, you didn't apologize. Oh, that's true. Well, oh, I, I was afraid I didn't want to sound too Canadian. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay, on that note, um, any final thoughts, Don, before we go? No, I think we pretty much. Uh, I think we pretty much covered everything we can, unless people like read the book, because then we have to get well. Specific. This is exactly true, and there there are three hundred pages of specifics. So, um, also, <laughs> by the way, don't let the you know size of the book when I keep talking about three hundred pages like scare anyone here. I mean, it's broken down to nice, easily to understand chapters about different sections, and most of it can be read in almost any order as well. So you know, just read it mm. if buy it and read it as you as you like. And uh, let me know what you think. And uh, if you really liked it, leave a uh, review on Amazon. I'd really appreciate that too. Mm. That's, the, if, that's the best way you can uh, show your appreciation. Uh, but yeah, actually, or leave a comment on the website. I'd love to hear from you about that or write to me, whatever. Anyway, so yeah, go check it out, folks. This, uh, sorry I'm being so self-serving and pushy, but eh, I'm, pr- <laughs> I'm really proud of this book. I'm really um, happy with the way it turned out and... Uh, yeah, I'd like for people to actually read it and to, and get something out of it. Because I think there's something there for almost everyone. Mm. And on that note, thank you for listening, folks. I'm going to stop plugging my book now. Talk to you, talk to you <laughs> later, and we'll see you next time on the Department of Nerdly Affairs for something cool and awesome. And buy my book. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!